This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hi, good everything. <laughs> good everything, Nubians. It's good the, everything. This is uh, Uraeus, um sending me shirts. I appreciate it. Uraeus always on the job, our yeah. brother. Uh, yes. How how art thou this morning, my my Nubian king? How are you, well, my Nubian queen? We're doing fine. They're gonna call us hoteps, and I'm gonna be disgusted because I could write it in glyphs on anybody's forehead who would use it as an insult, and we could all read it, but they couldn't. So uh, I just say it's good to see you this morning. Not on the forehead, hieroglyph. Yeah, you know, I get a little, I get a little, a little irate at that because I love these. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, at 57, having spent the vast majority of my life studying something one or the other and 30 some years teaching, you know, it is a great comfort to know that people who pick up on memes and who think that they can tell their masters at universities somehow that they know more than all the black people in the world together. It is a great comfort to know that they know much more about uh, the word hotel than I do and Dr. Beatty and shake out the joke and somehow they could just turn it into a pejorative it is great comfort to know because i wish those smart people had been around we was actually in a fight uh they could have actually been of some help but uh you know anyway enough of that that's that that's that uh who taught you to hate yourself conversation and we've yes. had brother malcolm so, <laughs> so yeah it's good to see <laughs> i actually want to piggyback on it as i sip my uh, octavia butler this has turned out to be my favorite uh tea of calabash tea and tonic so you gotta I'm just bewitching us with this. Uh, yeah, I've got my water and my decolonized palm because we're deep in the emancipation month and uh, we got to do some crossing over at some point because she's been brewing it up. So, Octavia is your favorite, yeah. And I don't put any lemon in it to change the the the, the, the color swirl because uh, I like it strong and purple. I know so, that's right, <laughs> it, is, it is delicious, it is aromatic, it is all of the things that allows me to be in community with you and all of the Nubians. Hello, Nubians, uh, wherever you are in the world, from hey, Nubia, to London, to, to Jamaica, to South Africa, to yeah, yeah. Nigeria, to yeah, yeah. Ghana. Thank you for being here. And of course, every place in between from California, where y'all are up the crack of dawn, basically to uh, Chicago, to Jersey, my home state. Um, yeah. and we'll throw in DC and Philly. Oh, here in DC for real. Yeah, I was uh, actually, I was out yesterday and I ran into a young brother who I hadn't seen since he was a undergraduate at Temple who asked me advice about going to law school. He went, he went, he went subsequently went to law school in England. Uh, he now works at one of the, lo uh, the local law schools. He's on staff there. And he said, and I'm glad that you said that, he said that I watch y'all to keep me grounded. So I'm going to uh, withhold all the rest of the information because everybody don't know where everybody is. But yes, good morning. Because <laughs> y'all don't know, oh, but we know who we are to each other. So that's what it says so as you were giving greetings to everybody. That's right. Let's start with the word grounding. Um, because oh, okay. I, had, I had not, you know, I was, of course, in office hours with y'all on Monday. With us. With with y'all, all of us. Yeah. All of us, yeah. Um, and just kind of laying in the cut because I was, I, I can't say angry. And I know a lot of people feel this way. When would we have bumped into Walter Rodney in our regular lives? Because I didn't bump into him until you introduced him to us. Mm-hmm. 
when would he have shown up? Because he's not a, he's not going to be in school, right? Like, who would have would it? I would have had to have taken an African Africana studies class, and and because I didn't hear about him in school, and I studied under Limworth Gunther for a couple of years. He told mm-hmm. me love him, yeah, um, yes. but he didn't bring up Walter Rodney during the couple of classes I took with him. Um, would I have to major in it? major in Africana studies, like black studies. What, when would Walter Rodney show up? Because I was like, this man was pivotal. You know, next week we're going to celebrate and commemorate and hopefully exonerate Marcus Garvey. But as I'm reading Walter Rodney and I want to spend a little time in chapter two, that black power chapter, That's me. but groundings and, and, um, and our brothers, right? Grounding, is it groundings in our brothers? Groundings with my brothers. Groundings with our brothers. Mm-hmm. I want to first, like, what is ground? Brothers and sisters, we would right. categorize it, yeah. Oh, we, you know, we... We, yeah, we, we, we give it, we, we, we forestall, yeah, no question, but we, yes, but yes, yes, yes. So when did you, when did you run into Walter Rodney? Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Um... I was in law school. It could very well have been the summer I was in Harlem in DC in Man- I'm in DC in New York in Manhattan when I worked for the Legal Defense Fund. And I was going uptown with uh, your colleague, our brother, Tony Brown. He was in grad school at the time he out there in California and I was in Ohio and we were working at the, in- at the Legal Defense Fund and he would take me to Harlem every weekend because I basically begged him to take me to First World Alliance so I could go sit up under Dr. Clark and Dr. Ben and Sister Kef and them. And I would, once I got the rhythm down, um, I would go up there all the time. And I spent a lot of time right there on Malcolm X Avenue. What is that? 132nd, I guess it is. Maybe Boulevard. Let me just be with the Boulevard, which used to be Yes. Used to be, uh, Sixth Avenue, Seven, Seven, Lennox, 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 right? But they changed it. So, Lennox, yeah, uh, with um, yeah, Seventh, I think, is Adam Clayton Powell, right? Is that I'm trying to remember. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah that's where the nations of gods and earth still got their building over there. So, I mean, I would, I was in heaven in Harlem, and of course, that's before uh, that little fascist who has imploded and now is a punchline and all jokes. Rudy Giuliani was mayor, and remember, he his whole thing was this is right around the time of Crown Heights, and uh, when Dinkins got run out of office. And uh, one of the things Giuliani campaigned on, in addition to showing up places with all them damn police uh, officers as a phalanx, his crowd was that he was going to run the vendors off 125th Street. Remember, all the vendors used to be out there, on <laughs> you know, and now some of them over there across from Malcolm Shabazz Mosque over 116th, they, they got a lot. But that, as you remember better than I do, that was, in fact, Fight the Power was filmed out there. I mean, the, the video, you, just people, if, you, if you didn't get a chance to experience what 125th Street was before those fascists, Came and then, of course, uh, our friend William Jefferson Clinton put his office in Harlem. People say, Oh, he loved black people. No, the office, uh, rent space in Midtown was too expensive. Like, but then that was the empowerment zone, right? You know the history, but now I do that's Charlie Wrangling's story for another day. But, um, those tables, it could have been one of those tape, it was either at one of those tables out there on the vendors on 125th, incense and books, no and questions. And everything that you can buy on the streets of Ghana and Nigeria and South Africa, you could have bought on 125th Street. Everything. And it wasn't just one or two vendors. Lining the streets. Lining for blocks. 
And then that U at 125th and Lennox right there, that corner, and then it just go right up that all the way up. And so it could have been either at one of those. And there's still a handful of them cats around. Baba Seku, my man from Newark, who's, who's found the African Echoes. They still around. Baba Infundishi, he's still over there. But um, that's when Mark 125 was still open. But that was, you know, some years ago. But uh, or was it Sister Eunice? That's what I was about to say. I used to spend a lot of time at Liberation Bookstore with Una Mozak who um, I mentioned in Roy Anderson's documentary, African Redemption, because her father, Hugh Molzak, was a captain of one of the Universal Negro Improvement Association's ships. He also in, uh, became a captain of a ship in the U.S. Merchant Marine. And she was the one who gave me a copy of her father's autobiography, A Star to Steer By, this black woman book owner, uh, bookstore owner, uh, who kind of took the baton from Richard B. Moore, from Mr. Michaud, neither of whom I was ever blessed to meet, but it could have been there because my first copy of the groundings, uh, I have all the editions now. It might have been, it was probably Una. Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember because it was the, it was one of those editions that was kind of grassroots. I remember the yellow cover and I'll never be able to find spy in storage, but that's what, that's where, so it wasn't the university in other words. It was the university. It was what we're doing. Nubia and narrative is an iteration. Part of it is an iteration of what they did for us. That was our university. And I mean, I had already, you know, I already had a bachelor's, was getting a law degree, hadn't yet got a master's, a PhD. And all of that is just papers. The education, like with Woodson and that, in Oliver Jones' parlor, coming out them coal mines after work when he read the paper to those brothers and sisters, he's like, yeah, man. That's where my education took place. So it was it was at the University of 125th Street and, and Malcolm X. <laughs> I think that's where it was in 1989. <laughs> and the title, you know, because um, when you think about being grounded, I um, it's part of, you know, the vision for what we're building, you know, and I, I jumped off to jump into Nubia to say hello to everybody. And, oh, good. Let me and, and um, so, you know, I think about foundation pouring i think about roots being you know set in place so that things can grow up and out and you know he's talking about coming together right grounding and rooting this kind of collective right is that so what jumped out about because as i'm reading it i was like why didn't i know who this man was doctor i'm gonna call him dr rodney Oh, no, he, he had a PhD. You guys, yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, what was it about that first book that made you um, want to sit in community with him in office hours? Last, that's, that's well, I think you know it. It, it is a natural progression. We're we're building this road, as Paulo Freire, we might say, it, the Latin American uh, uh, teacher. We're building this road by walking it. So each. You know, office hours didn't start as a kind of place where we would anchor our weekly conversations in a text. And we began to do that because of conversations. It was a it's a couple of hours on Mondays, eight Eastern Eastern time, Eastern Standard Time, where we Eastern Daylight Time now, where we sit and kind of talk about what's on people's minds. And when we you know the first we, we did it, I guess it was January uh, this year as we, we started. It, you know, it was a few hundred people, then a few hundred more, then a few hundred. And then as we were talking, 
as folk were coming in and having conversations and we're in this huge conversation, this global conversation in a governance space where critique, analysis, planning, inspiration for pe what people are doing yielded and continues to yield rooms as, as, as the Nubia platform continues to build out and, 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 and the narrative platform continues to build out and ideas about what would, what it be, what would it be useful to have in this narrative space in the Nubia space for people to learn, to know people are bringing as you have really framed for us beautifully bringing each person brings our brick. This is what I know. This is what I've experienced. This is what I would like to know more about. This is what I am now beginning to become aware of. I, not, I could be useful. And it all comes toward the we. How do it free us to echo Sonia Sanchez? And after several weeks of conversation, the whole concept of uh, diseducation, miseducation kind of emerged as something that we should probably spend a little time thinking together with thinking and helping each other understand that. And this is, this happens all the time. In fact, this is really in many ways, the birth of what we would call perhaps in the university setting, black studies or Africana studies, as we'll talk about a little later. So that led to, well, you know what, let's, uh, you know, let, let's read something together to give us a common point of departure and then let's talk about it and link it to what we know and what we don't know, what we want to know and spark and let's let's chop it up with somebody. And so that for me allowed me to dip into that momentum of memory and all of these years of working, particularly with young people, teenagers, younger than that, you know, school work. And then at the university, very deliberately, HBCU, and made that choice to be in that conversation, that beautiful, broad diversity in Blackness. And I always had an anchor text, whether it be the many years in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, which is what we did, or the first book we read, I think I told y'all many years ago, 1999 or 2000, year 2000, I think, when we uh, selected Randall Robinson's book, The Text. Uh, the, the the text. <laughs> I'm always thinking about the text. Randall Robinson's book, The Debt, which was, of course, on reparations. And Robinson gives us that whole rich history of reparations and then where the movement was. It's 22 years ago, y'all. You start thinking about this reparations conversation, you know. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll edit myself here because um, you asked me about Rodney. And so let me get to Rodney now quickly. So the idea of an anchoring text as a point of departure for conversation among folk who are trying to think about linking study and practice and action and all that together is something that, you know, I've sat with for many years and all the years that led up to that in the late 90s, early 2000s, which include those years, you know, the time I spent in New York and then, of course, Columbus, Ohio, the African Center for Study and Worship and my man Yusuf and now Cable Line Books in Nashville, Tennessee. Not study group as much as let's have a common point of departure to help people who have thought about this before representing all of our people who have thought about this before help us think about it we get this momentum of memory and we see what we've done well what we need to improve on what we hadn't anticipated and so i said well you know let's do the miseducation of the negro uh you know i've taught that book in courses including philadelphia freedom school one summer we read the miseducation of the negro but I wouldn't be teaching it here. Always ours isn't a class, it isn't a class in that sense. We got the African States class that's coming up. No, it's a discussion. And with that common point of departure, 
the beauty of it, and I heard you say this prof a, a few weeks ago, as you thinking about envisioning as this thing continues to build momentum and grow and explode, you know, how to engage with the world. And it becomes a little difficult because here we are in a community anchored with a conversation and you've got elders in their seventies, eighties, nineties, maybe even beyond. You've got children in the single digits who come in and have conversation, have perspectives and families, you know, and it's like now, okay, so if this were, and it's not, but if this were like a marketing thing, how could you market that? Why? Cause it's literally the community. And so with that, with Woodson, who I'm, you know, as an ancestor, I'm sure he's quite pleased, but I mean, if he were here physically, it would be like, man, this is, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> you smile? <laughs> I'm smiling because I have been, you know, I, hmm. I'm pausing because I know this is also going to be in you on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's why I didn't. You know. I have to think about it. But, um, you know, I want to talk about capitalism, but I think that discussion about capitalism is what got Walter Rodney blown up. Oh, no question about it. <laughs> and, and look, Monday night, remember last Monday, somebody asked about what were the circumstances of his death. And I said, you know what? This coming Monday, we're going to walk through all that together. All right. All right so yeah. I'll I'll say no, that. No, 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 no. But what you're raising is important because people want liberation, but the things that we see as that are challenged to that, we don't often talk about it. One of the reasons Rodney was at the end of his life between 1979 and 1980, you know, the Zimbabwe, for example, was coming out of its struggle. And Robert Mugabe was president of Mugabe. Well, he wasn't the president yet because it wasn't a Zimbabwe. They had just come from the Lancaster House where they had negotiated for months in England to this independence movement. Mugabe was part of the movement, but there are local politics involved. Joshua Nkomo, I mean, there's ANU-PF, which is a fusing of these different groups. By then, Rodney, his wife, their children, they were in Guyana and he, could, he, he couldn't get a job. The, the state had banned him. But to the world, the state is fronting like they socialists. You know what I'm saying? So even Castro won't get off the sidelines in some ways in Guyana. We'll talk about this stuff on Monday because you, they think, okay, they're with the revolution. Walter Rodney is like, yeah, no, they're not really with the real. These guys are bending, man. Do you understand? And so he's vulnerable in part because we won't face that contradiction. But we do that every day. Yeah, Joe well, Biden and them, this, this, this money that the Congress just passed there. Yeah, I just, um, um, I, well, I was going to say right quick, that this money that the, that the government, this bill, is better than nothing. But Folks who are extreme critics, and I agree 100% on the critique of capitalism, say, no, it's not enough. I'm like, hold on now. Hold on now. The ability of the government with their health program to negotiate for the price of prescription drugs is going to help somebody like your grandmother or grandfather or you who don't have no money. So it's not better than, I mean, it is better than nothing. Now, is it what we want? Is it universal health care? No. Is it? No. But it's better than the alternative, which is complete suffering. But Rodney was trying to help people understand through this network of people, global network, that, no, we got to keep pushing. Now, now that doesn't mean we don't concede the political, but we have to keep pushing. Come, come on back, Rob. I didn't mean to. I just wanted to make that point because we can put that in context. We're all, in other words, my point is we're doing that all the time. Right. We engaged in politics, not because we love politics, but because we can't be on the sideline. It's, 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 it's an impossible choice, but we have to get up every day and struggle. So, so I bring it up um, gingerly um, and I'm going to be more vociferous about it because I think that 
if the poor people's movement got King killed um, and bringing folk together, if bringing folk together in Chicago got Fred Hampton killed and Walter Rodney, who many of us never heard of until it came out of your mouth, got him killed. Hmm. That must be more than race and racism and more than all of that. <laughs> if you strike against capitalism, that will get you killed. <laughs> so I was thinking about, as I'm reading, because he talks about the paradox of this thing called unity. And as you brought up Carter G. Woodson, and we are here in community right now, and you brought up marketing, because if this were a business, I couldn't get money for it. Because, hey, <laughs> because the VC would say, well, who's your market? Well, it's everybody. Well, you know, well, who's your demographic? Well, it's it's everybody. It, it's, it's the tree with the eight-year-old and the seven-year-old. It's the 90-year-old. It's the men. It's the women. It's the couples. It's the family. It's the multi-generation. We have Letty who will come into a chat with her great-granddaughter on her lap, her granddaughter in the kitchen, her daughter, like four generations in listening to us talk. Um, and, and then like, sharing with us the elder wisdom. That's yeah. right. So, <laughs> uh, um, so, so who are we reaching? Um, everybody. Marketing doesn't work, but like corporations don't work with everybody. No. So you also have to understand the insidious way in which we are carved up and divvied up for marketing purposes. And we like shoot because we don't think about how we spend our money, how, how people are marketing to us, why, why we are, you know, why certain commercials happen the way they do and what the messages really are. We don't think we, you know, we need toilet paper. We're going to get, the, all right, this is the soft one. There's a bear with a booty and it's, uh, it's not sticking. Okay, I'm going to get that. This one smells good. This one, we're not thinking about how literally these multinational corporations have divvied up our very souls, right? So, so as you put things together, and I was thinking about this today as we were, I was thinking about your library, because you mentioned um, the car catalog on Monday, and I was like, the library has to happen. I imagine you going through your library with the Walter Rodney section and all of the different books and being- Oh yeah, oh, yeah. and I got them all. That's and have the, the ladder that goes up, and I'm thinking the Astor Gates and what he's, you know, so I'm thinking as I'm processing- I'm like, okay, how do we fund this? We can't fund it through corporate America. No. And I can't ask people to give more because it's already, the people who are here are giving enough. We need more people, like we, we need a broader, much broader, um, you know, uh, understanding from people to know that this is the way forward for all of us. Don't wait for the bandwagon. You know what I'm saying? It's like, everyone's waiting. Is this going to, you know, it's like heaven. All right, the angels, who's going to win? All right, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and wait to see who wins between God and this Lucifer guy. <laughs> I'm going to wait. All right. Oh, God won. Hey, God, how you doing? Love you. You know, good to see you, God. Oh, I'm so happy. And God was like, get your ass up out of here. You you would neither hot nor cold. You gonna wait? No. Some of y'all going to be spat out. Or end up in the abyss with with the adversary and wonder why because that's the lines why the move was happening and so I feel very strongly about it because there are things that have to be done and capitalism is at the root of dividing us <clears throat> and at the same time 
what Walter Rodney talked about with Jamaica, who's celebrating its independence. But really, were you independent? Hey, were you really independent when you uh, adopted the same ways and brought that same level of hierarchy and all of this colorism and all this bull crap that separates us? And then he goes into chapter two with black power. And if you ain't white and white is an ideology and a power structure, That's then right. you are all black. Like isn't so, that, isn't that something? What Rodney says? God, so black and, is everybody who ain't white. That's revolution. <laughs> oh so yes, kaboom! Your ass had to be blown up as a result of your and, and, and he's not he's not lumping everybody together culturally, but what he's saying is as a political formation, this isn't about blackness. It's about whiteness. This is the thing. Like, Y'all got to understand. <laughs> if you're not white, you're not in the club. That's really what he's saying. He's oh, the Indians aren't white. The, 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 the Aboriginals aren't white. The Mexicans aren't white. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Everybody calm down. Did you hear what I said? Blackness as political weapon. This is all serving this whiteness that is at the heart of capitalism. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And you're right. Blackness will, you know, as we talked about on Monday night, and he talks about that uh, as he gets into chapter uh, three, Black Power, its relevance to the West Indies, where he uses the case of Jamaica. And remember, we, we, we talked about this. We'll talk about this more Monday. The, those nine months that uh, they spend in Jamaica because he's employed at University of West Indies, Mona Bay, which is where he went to school. So he and Patricia Rodney, his wife is there, uh, their old son, Shaka, who was born outside of Caribbean, brought there. and then. Um, you know, followed by two more children, but he he's telling them, you know, hell, they made Marcus Garvey a national hero in Jamaica. And what did he do? Didn't do anything. And it, it really, it previews where we are today. In other words, blackness, if it can be made into a commodity, into cosplay, into a virtual virtue signaling, or as uh, Catherine Liu talks about, uh, a kind of uh, appendage or accessory for the what she calls and many others call it this as well the professor the professional managerial class in other words if it doesn't cost us our shot at getting a few coins in this capitalist project then i'll be black as hell in fact i prefer a little black accessorizing um i know on the campus where you know i i work uh howard has signed a deal with uh jump man with nike mm. and then they're gonna now outfit you know the sports teams and and I'm thinking about uh, last year when with my students, we looked at what Spelman and Morehouse have done with Ralph Lauren. And, you know, the students were like, yeah, see, that's that's not nah, that's not right. Because I said, hold on now. Where are y'all enrolled? Now, y'all know, I don't believe this. I know it. In other words, <laughs> it's not a question of faith. It's not a question of opinion. It's a question of analysis and reason. It ain't but one HBCU. Now they got many different locations and they are all different from each other, but collectively in terms of that approach, it's all part of the same formation. And so what do you do, Professor Hunter? I mean, what do you do in a moment when your deal with Under Armour is up and Nike comes and says, we're going to have Howard on one side and Michael Jordan dunking a basketball with his legs splayed on the other side. I thought about, you know, as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking about, what was the one that Ken Griffey tried in baseball? Because I yeah. saw him. Swingman. Swingman, yeah, because I saw him, him he and his, his father, right? Because Ken Griffey Sr., who I grew up cheering for with the Reds, they were out there in Iowa with that field of dreams. You know, Major League Baseball has that midsummer game where they cut out the cornfield and they came out the corn stalks 
And Ken Sr. says to Ken Jr., son, you want to have a catch? And he said, I like that. No, Ken Jr. says, you know, like they did in Kevin Costner's movie. And, of course, I've seen Field of Dreams a million times because I understand European mythmaking. You were never there, black people. But Major League Baseball will go cut a whole-ass baseball diamond in August out of a cornfield in Iowa to prop up cultural meaning-making and movement and memory for them. And what are they doing? That whole movie is around the redemption of Shoeless Joe Jackson out of South Carolina who was accused with his teammates in 1919 of throwing the World Series. And you know what most black people know about that? Nothing except what they heard in The Godfather because Arnold Rothstein got his name from the guy who was the mobster who helped throw the damn World Series in 1919. But that's all because of Field of Dreams, the movie. That's why we even know about it. And then in 2022, they playing catch and Ken Griffin had on the swing man. And I'm thinking, Ken, it's dead. It didn't jump off, bro. It didn't jump off. But that jump man continues to soar. And now he's on one side and Howard's on the other side. And my question to you is, how can we evade, in the words of Boots Riley, in the coup of the coup, capitalism is like a spider. The web is getting tighter. I'm struggling like a fighter. But every time I try to fight capitalism, the spider steps in. In other words, can it be evaded? I mean, do you not make the deal? I don't know. <laughs> I'm asking because they asked me. They didn't know. I got students everywhere. One of them asked me, Dr. Carr, you want to be involved in this campaign? I was like, no, I don't. Well, what's wrong with you? You don't need the money? Well, no, but here's the point. Whether it's been money or just, I don't want y'all to see me in my work clothes, a dashiki or some African clothes, you know, with Nike logo next to it. But the, but but I work at the place with the Nike. It doesn't, I didn't evade it. You know what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. okay, I mean, because you you're asking a question that I battle with every day. You know, I just canceled an advertiser from the radio. Mm. Who does that? No, I don't mm -hmm. want your money because I've gotten too many complaints, and as a result of the complaints, now I know you're not serving, and I'm doing research, and like, okay, you slipped in, and now you got to slip out. So I'm cutting my own finances because I care more about the people's experience than I do about making money, but that's only sustainable because I have a, you know, a job with a pension and, you know, like fine. So you talk about Walter Rodney not being able to be financially secure. You talk about King not being financially secure, Malcolm not being financially secure. And as a result, you know, somebody has to then have a charity, you know, whether it's Harry Belafonte or Mahalia Jackson or, you know, the nation or what to bolster so that people can live and feed their families and whatever. So folk make decisions out of their lack. Right. And we have whole ass civil rights leaders who are multimillionaires because checks were cut. And then what what deals were made? What what aren't you doing as a result? You know, what silence was that purchased? What did that purchase? You're, in what areas, you know, that you are silent on. Yeah, you're over here doing these things, but you're silent over here because this check is tied to that. So I can't talk about that company because, so what are we knowing? And so you're asking a fundamental question, right? Like, I think it first requires leaders that are not financially insecure, leaders that have a grounding. Minute, in a space where it's building, but like you said, if I, Jonathan Shell said something many years ago, the late Jonathan Shell in the book he wrote called The Unconquerable World. This is just 30, you know, even 10 seconds. He said there are two powers in the world. There are the powers of the governments of the world with the nuclear weapons and the finance and money. And then there are the people of the world. We should never forget that we have enough people. <laughs> what we talking about now doesn't matter because they sell into what? To people. 
they're using the labor of what of people. But anyway, I didn't mean to go there. Yeah, I say this to say, you know, this is why I preach. You know, so I spent seven years to make sure that I was on good grounding before I made any exactly. money. You had the people, no question. Because I, you know, because people go and try to pull the rug up. You know, today's assassination is character, is finances, mm. you know, and and maybe it's bodily. You know, Salman Rushdie got stabbed in the neck, and uh, he may. I don't know if he's gonna make it, but you know, it's like today. Maybe. You know, giving a speech, you know, 34 years, they sat up on them. They were like, we didn't forget that fat while Did not forget. Kept going moment by moment till they got him. Can you believe? 34 years, yo. They never took a break. Mm, so much to say. But, and, <laughs> and so, you know, even those of us, so I'm, I'm like really fastidious in like, get your money together. How do you get there? Make sure that you're not in an insecure position so that you have to do strange things for change and you have to sell your people out for change. You have to, you know, do something that is does not honor your spirit or your people because you are in lack. And to be in lack is a desperate. I mean, it doesn't take long to be desperate. It doesn't take long to, to be in a place of desperation where you especially if you have a responsibility to feed other people. Like if you're a parent or you, have, you know, that, that, that all bets are off. You're going to do whatever you need to do. And I, I'm not going to judge you, which is why it is super important that we, you know, everybody wants to do you are on steady ground, grounded before you go run out and try to build something because they're going to come with the checks. Right. So you ask the question. Let's 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 let's, let's let me don't 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 before you answer the question just let's just pause there and put a footnote in that Jay Z and it's a hard knock like talk about people having to strip to pay tuition okay bro so then what do you do well let me go into the light as a capitalist and I'm gonna flip it you can't flip it bro I know it's like y'all in Martha's Vineyard right now not anybody here necessarily although maybe some people but I go back to Gil Scott Heron when you said that and make me want to holler the inner city blues where Heron says you know this sister was looking at some hungry babies and some decisions had to be made would you tell her it's better to go to your grave as a minimum wage no she's looking at these hungry babies and some decisions had to be made and so he does he have a solution no and then he goes into Marvin Gaye make you want to holler which brings us to Marvin Gaye in other words this is not something new now the question I would ask you, even as you about to answer this question, you know, as we move forward in terms of how do we address that is on the other end of the spectrum, because today's Financial Times with Salman Rushdie on the on the on the front being stabbed, leading the Times. Well, here I just show you right quick. Rushdie, of course, on the FT. He's there. He is fighting for his life. But at the bottom below the fold, it says luxury watch prices have have at wealthy Chinese sell collections to stay afloat, stay afloat. Soon Young, writing from Beijing, says the price of secondhand luxury goods has fallen rapidly in China over recent months, even as the wealthy cut back on spending and sell their Rolexes, Rolex watches and Hermes bags to raise cash. Professor Hunter, are they are they in danger of uh, first of all, are they in danger of starving? And really a second. Second of all, are they in danger of starving? And first of all, can you secure a bag in a, a social formation where how much money is less important than what you control. These are billionaires. They cutting back on buying Rolexes. Why? Because China, for all of its bravado, is part of a world capitalist system. And if these white boys decide they got the right game, they push the button. Now, even the rich Chinese, your coin is never secure. 
It's <laughs> what I'm asking. You. Which is why this is the 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 again. Ooh, uh, I'm gonna say something. I'm gonna say something. <laughs> pray for me. Pray for me. Which is why you know. Yeah, we gonna pray for Professor Hunter now. <laughs> which is what the, that that's the trick, right? That's the trick. So all you chasing whatever uh, cars, bags, money, hoes, and optimos. Come on now, y'all are chasing, right? Come on. The, the reality is the value is only what somebody tells you it is. What what some what the system says the value is. Is a red bottom valuable? Is a Rolex valuable? Is an Hermes bag valuable? Is it really valuable? If you can't eat, is it valuable? If you can't pay to live, is it valuable? And that we're seeing, how is a Rolex cut in half? Well, well, I thought a Rolex was worth $25,000. Dr. Carr, why is it now only worth $15,000 or $10,000? What happened to the value? Oh, well, the market changed. Well, who changed the market? So for me... So it was two things. First of all, be uh be a debt, be in debt to nobody, and that includes mortgages. So my my goal, you know, I had this conversation with um a bunch of people. I have money people on all the time talking. Mm-hmm. I need us, you know. But Napoleon Hill, we can just go back to you know that's in, that's in you know public domain. It, it is about being able to to not owe anyone, and they got this mortgage system which has death really in the you know, Latin right there, death is in the title of a mortgage, but the notion of paying off your home, the notion of not having a home a mortgage or not having a car payment is so foreign to us, but that's the freedom, right? To be able to have a plot of land that you can feed yourself on, that you own outright, that you protect. Yeah. Because that nonviolent stuff will kill you. So you got to protect oh, it. But you got to also have community so that everybody's protected. That's the stuff right. That they have. And then we got to be in government so y'all can't pull that uh, eminent domain bull crap because we are uh, eminently involved in our local government to know when that's coming. And we know what the city planning is because we're on the city planning boards and we show up to these meetings to make sure right. that the planning works in our favor and that we have people in place that we put there to make sure that you're not coming with the BS. And you can't take a defeat as an utter defeat. You got to keep coming back. You got to ask John Boyd and them farmers saying Biden sold us out, took it out. We didn't have a muscle to override it. So in other words, now with this bill that just passed, they didn't have the muscle to get it off. They may come on, come on back. I didn't, I just will just make it the point you're making. We have to be everywhere. There is, what, what was the, the saying? There, in, on a battlefield, there is no sheltered rear. <laughs> There's no place you can hide. We all on the battlefield. <laughs> Look, that's what Larry Fishburne tried to tell Ice Cube in higher higher education. We behind enemy lines. Everybody's behind enemy lines. So <laughs> you can fight or not fight, but nobody's safe. <laughs> so, so what it looks like is community where nobody is hungry because yeah. everybody is contributing something, yeah. right? Nobody is without, you know, and that all of us collectively take a responsibility to reduce our debt so that we're not beholden to anyone, not even a bank. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and then, you know, create our own ways of, you know, um, supplying needs, you know, or, or money if people need that for, for businesses. I'm watching it happen in, in Ghana. You know, I'm intimately involved with Dr. Soares and the thing that he's building there. And mm-hmm. and there's like this money flow, you know, and, and you know, even the guy that does Vitae watches uh, that and you advertise on my show, mm-hmm. um, William Adosi. There's a, a capital system where, you know, money gets to the people that need it. You know, there's a shade butter person that I'm, you know, talking with. And she's got a system of, you know, where the folk that are 
harvesting the shea butter. They also are getting funds and, you know, and now everything is kind of global. So you can, you know, but I, that's what I envision. This is why we built what we built so that we can have what we need. Maybe not everything you want, but maybe we need to change our wants. I think we need to change our wants, don't you? Yeah, because we we have control over ourselves. That's what freedom looks like. I'm a grown-ass person, and I don't have to want all of the things that they tell me I need to want, nope. that I need, but I don't have to want them because I don't need them. Nope. What do you need? Nope. Clean water, food, air, and a roof over your head. And each other. And each other. And clothes on your backs because we shouldn't be walking around naked. Some of us are Walk around naked, yeah, we got to the point where we remember how and why clothes work in terms of even the so-called will to adorn to you know to beautify ourselves but in certain climates you don't need all them clothes but that will require a deep mindset change because the west is all about that objectification capitalism isn't just an economic system capitalism is a way of knowing in other words how can i objectify a thing so your value isn't your labor your value is what I can profit from because of your labor. Yes. Yeah, your your value is literally your body, as a lot of folks are saying in the chat right now. You know, your value. We were the capital in capitalism, right? So when you just pause for thirty seconds, Sam, as we talked about, when Samuel Alito writes in the, the Jackson case, Dobbs, you know that there were all these anti-abortion laws. Black people should sit there. No, a black woman was an automatic teller machine, and every baby that came out was a withdrawal. She was not a person, you capitalists. Slavery, that's why Eric Williams wrote Capitalism and Slavery. <laughs> this is why this book, Blood and Money, I mean, this whole question of, as you say, mortgage, death. In fact, I paid for my house. Good. That's better than not having a, that's not having a mortgage, better than having a mortgage. But who is this coming? Oh, I'm the property tax man. You're going to keep paying a mortgage to the state. And we're going to take that money and give breaks to these other friends of ours across the street, they're going to build a whole ass house over there across from your street, make it all Airbnb, rent it out, and then we're going to go up on your property taxes until we finally run you out this neighborhood. You can't escape capitalism by, and so you certainly can't do it by yourself to the point you're raising. You're developing and have developed, and so many of us in this, in this space learning from you, and so many of folk who are in here who also doing work like that, connecting with each other, to organize the people. That doesn't mean you don't get paid in cities or renabis or dollars or yen. It means that if you're going to exchange and do trade, which we've done since we've been humans, you do it with a different purpose. I'm not trying to put all the money in my account and you don't have nothing to eat. Now, I do like bags. So, but is there a black person who makes this bag that I could buy it from? And I'm not trying to get all the money from the bag. It's, it's like you said, and it's not from this to this it's a it's a process part of our space here the beauty of this space is that coming in this space the principle is we are together so nobody judging anybody we're learning and you can extract yourself from certain ways of knowing you don't have to do it immediately it's almost impossible to do that and in fact sometimes you can't trust people who do it immediately which is why i'm always suspicious of that uh conversion story in the bible about saul of tarsus i'm like really so yeah, Paul, you know, I had somebody that studied the Bible and you know taught the Bible. Um, yes, yes, man. Come on, walk us through this. I'm not, but what I was gonna say is when somebody, you know, you would we would baptize them and then they would come out and they would, you know, be all crying and and you know, just oh, just oh, just all of this. 
couple of weeks, they would be gone. Straight you know, up. Because, because <laughs> that journey, and I always say per- perfection is a process, but even this, we are figuring things out. The the automatic conversion of anything should be held with some suspicion because that's not how we process, right? We we evolve. It doesn't happen like overnight. Um, and I know that some people well, repentance is turning away immediately. Don't play with me with the Bible. Um, Don't play with but the, the point I'm making is, you know, as we as human beings on this planet together figure this out, it will require, you know, some of us going to be uncomfortable. That's where the change happens. Lean into that discomfort, mm. process it, understand it, know that that is a natural, you know, way. I'm sure it hurts to grow. It does. They call it growing pains for a reason, but allow yourself to grow. Um, and as we figure it out, I don't know what the next system is going to be. I don't know where this is going, but I'm really pleased when I show up to someplace and I see folk with shirts on that look like this, yeah. Um, so they got their, their Octavia or whatever they're wearing, you know, different things. I, I know what, like we're part of something really special and you made a decision to come and be a part of something, even if you didn't quite understand what it was or what your brick is or what have you, but you're sitting in it and, you know, that's, that's okay. It's like people call it my show. I just started listening. Just, just, I just tuned in and I, and you, so you. Just started listening to a show. You don't even know what the show's about. You just heard five minutes. You decide to call up mm. and have an opinion. Mm. Really? That's how that works? Of course. Okay. That's why you about to get your whole ass handed to you. <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't do it. But no. you but you never, you don't, you let people in. They say, I mean, there's a protocol. I mean, that's, we know that. The pro, Please come, but you should be quiet first. Hence, Groundings to the yeah. point you're raising. No, no, seriously. No, 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 no. You've said that. You you just gave us another example. Here's a man, and we talked about this Monday night. We talked about it last weekend too. But Monday night, what a conversation! Another thousand folk talking about Wagner Walter Rodney, a man who was the top of his high school class in Guyana, in his in his native born in Georgetown, Guyana. A man who then went off to the University of West Indies in, in the branch in Mona in Jamaica, uh, top there, then went off to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, finished his dissertation, age 24, same day that he and Patricia's their first son, Shaka, was born. He defended his dissertation, took jobs in his short life because at 24, his life was over, was not, was well over half over, he only lived another 14 years taught in Tanzania, came through the United States, Canada many times, taught in Jamaica till they put him out after he went to the writers conference in 68 in, in, in Canada. And while he was out of the country, they banned him, had to take a job back and forth between London, comes back home because he wants to come back home and help because he says in Africa, I'm known as a historian in the United States. I'm known as a thinker and an activist in Guyana. I'm known as a politician. He didn't want to be in politics, but he says, I'm not going to be on the sidelines there. We're not, we're all behind enemy lines. And so he's there struggling. That's what eventually leads to his death, that struggle. But, and the last years of his life, he couldn't even be employed because he was banned. Meanwhile, he's writing with his children in his lap. His wife, Patricia, continues to she finishes more degree, more degrees and comes back. She's working, uh, even though they stop her from getting employment as well in Guyana. And what you see in the life of Walter Rodney is a recognition. And I said all that as a preface to say this, Professor Hunter. 
because you, you you led out this morning with grounding and you just gave us another example. People calling in and saying, you know, it's my first time calling. Here's what I think. And yes, if you come in that way, well, then everybody who's listening, including other people who are listening for the first time or joining it for the first time may think, well, you should probably know where you are before. One of the hallmarks of the life of Walter Rodney was that when he entered a space, like so many others, I'm entering respecting the humanity of the space I'm entering, the people in the space already. So in the groundings with my brothers, he writes about this and certainly in the Verso Press edition. And by the way, you know, I tweeted out a, a picture of a couple of dozen copies of this book that were being sent out that day. Uh, Kamal, Christina Joy over there, Sankofa. And they're not alone. I saw um, my young sisters at uh, Harriet's uh, bookstore in, in Philadelphia and this companion shop, Ida, Ida's bookstore, Black Women Centered bookstores. Um, you know, out there fighting for survival, you know, what we're doing, and we're not the only ones doing it, but when you start talking about hundreds and now thousands of people engaged in reading and thinking, those coins that go out to support these black bookstores that do that, that's part of what you're talking about, Prof. That's, that is helping that network continue for the people who have it, who are able to do that. And so that grounding that you talk about, whether it be a first-time caller or in Walter Rodney's case, when I come and get a job at University of West Indies, the same place I graduated from, and while I'm on this campus trying to help students understand and do my own research and think about things, and I've got a, you know, an uneasy relationship with the uh, administration, but they do defend me when they try to ban me to government, and they say, we're not going to kick him off the faculty, so the government has to ban him because the university won't let that happen. He says, what I learned, the people I learned the most from were the Rastas. He said, I learned more from them than they could ever learn with me, which is why one of the editions of the Grannings with My Brothers has these pictures, these rosters on the front, on the front cover, hand-drawn picture, the artwork reflecting now. Maybe that may be the one I got from Yuna. But the point I'm trying to make is the, what, you're, what you're raising is grounding starts with humility. So if I don't know, I'm coming in to hear. Now, does that mean that you had an opinion when you came in? We all have opinions all the time. Which is why Dr. Obinga used to always tell us, you know, you got knowledge by opinion, knowledge by reason, knowledge by faith. There are very different knowledges. But if you come in a space and you don't even know what's going on, you say, well, here's what I think. It's not that you can't do that, but you should probably be prepared to receive back what happens when you come in a space that you don't know about talking. As Baba Fukiao, Bunseki Fukiao used to say, Kimbundende Kia Kia Fukiao used to say. Uh, channeling the wisdom of the Bakongo, the Kikongo people, the Central Africa. He said, you know, what you think belongs to you, what you say belongs to us. So, yeah, that's a, that's a powerful thing. This concept of grounding, you, you enter a space with humility. Listening is, uh, think of it if you want to use some of this co common contemporary parlance. I hate to, no, I started to say, think of it as radical listening, but I'm not even going to add anything to it because the West is good for adding things that don't need to be added. That's one, another thing about African languages, including the Ebonics that African people fashioned out of these clearly inferior languages like English, French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese. Simplicity. So instead of radical listening, just, just call it uh, listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listening. 
yeah. I mean, but I know it's a lot of people make a lot of money as academics giving lectures where they talk about the pedagogy of radical listening. There's a future pedagogy involved in the body in this act of radical listening. What's that? That mean, as the young people would say in the simplicity, say less. <laughs> say less. I mean, it's there's a genius in black speech acts that distill the experience to less. Talk about groundings, Professor Hunter. It makes me think about the fact that since we have all were all together last week, there have been a couple of transitions that I wanted to bring up today people who became ancestors um one who is better known than the other in terms of our kind of common social structure parlance precisely because his craft was one that in terms of capitalism has been monetized differently and people made a lot of money and also because this venture into capitalism on the back of his labor and the back of the labor practices of his comrades and family were complicated for the social structure that they worked and lived and worked in, they lived and worked in by the fact that there was a black institution that emerged to kind of encase that labor and stand between the market of capitalism and the community of black labor that was being exploited. And that complicated, triumphant, problematic, celebrated black institution was Motown. And of course, I'm talking about Lamont Dozier, Lamont Herbert Dozier, uh, the middle part of HDH, Holland Dozier Holland. Lamont Dozier made transition um, this past Monday. Um, a Detroiter, you know, had just made it past his birthday, which was in June, 1941, he was born. Um, so I guess we're making what, 81? When he made transition, uh, Lamont Dozier, <laughs> name for Lamont Cranston. That's a little bit before our time, wasn't it, Pro? Remember the shadow? Hey, you probably heard the tapes. If any, I used to listen to the, the tapes. Knows. Is that the is that the line? The shadow knows. Yes, yes. <laughs> what is it? What is it? Uh, what evil looks? Yes, men. <laughs> the shadow knows. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Or as Richard Pryor remixed it, the shadow do. But at any rate, <laughs> the shadow does. Yeah, he was named for he was named for that that character, Lamont Cranston, coming out of that age when radio. And it's so funny. I mean, you know this better than I do. Obviously, I mean, uh, whatever the medium are, whatever the science and technology is that is the delivery system for the way we and we we absorb experiences now electronically. There will probably there will never be a substitute for radio because radio comes here and then you make up the pictures in your mind. So it's funny that he would be named for him. But anyway, of course, I was reading and I, I was looking for his uh, memoir, which came out fairly recently and I couldn't put my hands on it. But I did have close at hand the memoir of his uh, partners, Eddie and Brian Holland, who still walked earth, called Come and Get These Memories, which was the first hit they had. Come and get these memories for uh, Martha and the Vandellas. And um, the simplicity, the simplicity of Holland Dozier Holland, the simplicity is just, it, 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 I mean, it's hard to, you know, and we could talk about, I don't know, let me pause here because let me, let me, let me pull up the Nubia to see what hits HDH hits people think 
love the most. Which ones do you have? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Oz. Baba Oz put the shadow in. Where did our love go? Yeah, they, they are the force behind the Supreme. Where did our love go? In fact, more babies than Ashanti. <laughs> baby, baby. Ooh, baby, baby. Simplicity. But what is it about the simplicity of those lyrics? These are guys in their 20s, y'all. I mean, Smokey writing before that. But, you know, I don't know if you have any favorites. Me? Yeah, from Holland Doja Holland. Um, you know, that generation is a little past me, but it would probably be a supreme. supreme yeah, yeah, because they have what was it, 13? I think 13 number one hits in a row. Or maybe it's baby, I need your love. Oh, come on now. Stop playing. Yeah, maybe it's that. I'm Four not chops. Sure. Oh, you know what? In the shadow of love, yes. <laughs> waiting on a heartache to come. Simplicity. Okay, what about this? How sweet it is to be by you. Come on now. No, let, let's sit in that one for a minute, just for a second, because I remember Lamont Doja telling the story about how Marvin Gaye. You know, Marvin Gaye was always a little rogue. So what? he said when they, when they what? wrote, you know, what I'm saying, right? so you know, so he said. They had a they had a recording session scheduled for him for that song, and they had given him the song to learn. So they in the studio, gay not there. They calling around looking for him. It's a, they finally track him down. Hey man, we supposed to be here. Oh oh yeah oh yeah okay. Is it? Did you learn the song? What song? How sweet it is. What? <laughs> oh man my oh man I completely forgot. I'm on the way. I'm on the way. He said Marvin got there. They rehearsed cup time, and he cut it. Beautifully, and this is what Lamont Doja said about that song. My Doja said, the thing about Marvin Gaye was when we were writing for Marvin Gaye, and remember the Holland brothers were performers. Mm-hmm. Doja wasn't, a, he was writing, you know, but he wrote to the music. They were doing lyrics. He said, we would never give Marvin a complete song finished every from beginning to end. We gave him room to improvise because we found out that if you gave Marvin Gaye the thing chapter and verse straight up, he was going to be lazy with it. But if you pushed him, <laughs> if you gave him the thing incomplete and then forced him to stretch, he'd blow your mind. So when you hear how sweet it is to be loved by you, understand they gave him enough to get in there and you didn't even thought about, oh, I didn't learn about it. And they got in there. And so he, that's Marvin too. He's co-composing. Now that's going to be important in a minute because there's a song that they wrote. And again, these are kids. And I think about that song a lot because it's one of my favorite Lamont Dozier songs with, with, with the Holland Brothers. Whenever I'm with him, something inside starts to burn in, and I'm filled with desire. Could it be a devil in me, or is this the way love's supposed to be? That's like a heat wave. I always think about that song because they did not write it the way I think about it. But that's like a lot of music. But the simplicity allows, like a lot of African proverbs, like a lot of African languages, a lot of sayings, it allows you to populate it with what you're thinking about. Heat wave, that was 1963. Could it be a devil in me? <laughs> or is this the way love's supposed to be? In other words, is there something beyond this thing that is in front of me that is animating me to behave this way? It's like a heat wave. Lamont Doja said it was hot in Detroit that summer. Well, it couldn't be that simple. 
He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about the four tops. <laughs> he said they wrote a song one time. He said they had a they had an agreement where, how did it go? They had an agreement where they didn't write songs with girls' names in them because it would limit the appeal of the song. They didn't want nobody naming it. He said, but I had a muse. Uh-oh, a muse. Uh, <laughs> we got to get into some women. Some men. He mm-hmm. said, I love this girl. We were 12 years old. Where's Lamont Dozier going with this? <laughs> Her name was Bernadette. <laughs> now you can hear Levi stuff. You can hear the four tops. <laughs> Bernadette. <laughs> he said, I came to the studio. We had, we had an agreement. We ain't writing no names, no, no, no songs, no girls' names in it. I wrote Bernadette. And I'm piecing it out on the piano, whatever. Eddie and Brian Holland are like, Okay, we said we were not gonna put no girls' names in it, but we like this song that can stay. He said we got to talk and come to find out they had girlfriend, ex-girlfriends named Bernadette. He said, What are the odds of that? Now I'm going somewhere with this. His muse was a child. Baby love, my baby love. I need you. Oh, how I need your love. Think about that. You're not talking about the strip club. You ain't talking about everybody out here slinging dope behind out. I'm not blaming anybody who writes to any of those inspirations, those muses, because that's the social structure we have now. When they were writing, it was crushes. Oh, when they were children and they brought that energy 30 years later, not 30 years later, a decade later in their 20s writing and and Lamont Dozier heard him say this one time he said you know y'all call us great songwriters we were kids he said I'm a better songwriter now after decades than I was then but we had something and that something was community let's talk about this governance formation in our African studies framework who are we to each other these are not individuals going off geniuses writing by themselves though they're constantly in conversation competition co-mingling working together thinking together acting together and so what comes out of that because you know we've all heard the stories about barry gordy and the assembly line structure and the quality control sessions once a month is this a hit is this not a hit but part of that is animating this this desire to push but the desire to push and to make hits hitsville usa is still being informed by ways of knowing that are underneath that it looks simple but now i said all that to say this in 1965 marvin gay collaborates on a song because when i think of heat wave i don't think about the love as much as although dozier is always saying it was love that animated everything we did love that animated everything we did we were thinking about love we were thinking about love and i was saying and so i don't think about it in that way as much as i think about how our feeling for each other in that sense of love, our connection with each other in terms of governance overflows the boundaries of these oppressive structures. Two years after um, Heat Wave, Marvin Gaye and his collaborators at Motown come up with another song. And that song is sung by Martha and the Vendellas. Do you know that song, Professor Hunter? Some of y'all know, let me look in the chat. I do not. Everyone around the world, are you ready for a brand new beat? This is 1965. 
So we about to sneak around and get on the scene, right, bro? <laughs> Marvin Gaye in the first line of Dancing in the Street overflows the boundaries of the United States. Everyone around the world. This the man who Holland Dozier and Holland said, we don't give him complete songs. We got to stretch him. Well, he done stretched now. In fact, Motown is the history of stretching, out bursting the bounds of that formation. Remember, Holland Dozier Holland sued Motown eventually. Because with all the love going around, it's still about that money. This, this, this whole, this capitalist conundrum you find yourself in. So they beefing too. Now they're going to make up and over the years after they become whole ass legends, then a lot of that stuff is going to be kind of buried or look the other way. In fact, let me just read something right quick from Come and Get These Memories. Which I love. Y'all ever heard the song Come and Get These Memories, y'all? <laughs> Come and get these memories. The sister's like, get your shit. Come and get these memories. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I mean, wait a minute, let me pause. Let me pause here for a minute, bro. They're not children, but they're so young. They're so young. People say I'm the life of the party because I tell a joke or two. You got grown-ass people. As Gil Scott Heron might say, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, the song they put on the jukebox then at the at the bar, that's for all them people who looking for the heroes of 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning. If you play Tracks of My Tears, you got grown, you got people that lived a whole lifetime of heartbreak. Take a good look at my face. Oh, the smile is, you know, it's, it's easy to trace. But if you look closer, it's easy to trace the tracks of my tears. How you write a song like that as a kid, Professor Honey? Oh. <laughs> How do you write that song as a kid? It's funny. Are, you, you know, are you a kid? Was Fred Hampton a kid? Was was Walter Rodney a kid? Was, was, was Malcolm a kid? You know, like, I feel, again, <laughs> that, that because um, you and I right now are really elders. No question, you know. Um, no question, especially to little Olivia, who if y'all ain't in in there, you know, newbie and her family, she ride with us on the regular. You know what I'm saying? Going on nine, um, and all of the children that listen um to my show who are in the car, whose parents put headphones on them on Fridays, as you should, please do. <laughs> don't, let the baby listen. Don't, let, don't let the babies listen on Friday. Don't um, let them listen. <laughs> but you know, as you're as you're talking, I, and I ask this question, even you know, I think about my parents who married, you know, at 21 and 23. Mm. And I never knew them as anything but adults. Do you know what I'm saying? Like oh, they no were grown, grown people in no their way. early 20s with responsibilities and families and children. So and and then the world, you know, you're getting fire hoses and dogs and ass whippings and all kinds of assault on your character and your part of the reason that he wrote dancing in the street it was became the anthem to the rebellion see so <laughs> detroit 67 newark 68 <laughs> dancing in the street we said oh, this shit. <laughs> dancing in the street <laughs> all of us complaining today as mm. if we are going through because we're not this ain't the worst times even with all of the damn debaucherous and horrible ass people out there trumping whatever they're doing I, you know, the folk that came before us, who are now in their nineties, mm. went through a lot. Mm. You know, I was, was I was talking about LeBron James because you know they retired Bill Russell's number six, but yeah, the whole league for the whole league, right? The whole league, but they grandfathered in like LeBron and 
Porzingis. Oh, okay, like they did Mariano Rivera with uh, Jack Nelson. Yeah, to keep the six. But I think they should give it up because none of them would be playing if Bill. Well, that's interesting. Else, I think they should just give it up. So you like, saying LeBron, by, by Bolis, they should just get together and say we are get retiring. Get a new number, all of you. Like, right. pay homage right. to this man that took them L's and them ass whoopers and dog doodle and the people defecating in their damn bedrooms and all Come of on. the N words and all of that to win all of them championships and play. You know, like let's let's really pay homage to him. You ain't got to wear that number. <laughs> you Come know, on. get that man his number. Let it be retired. But I feel like you know we don't respect that momentum of memory that you talk about. Yeah, so yeah. I, I don't look at them as children. Even though today, by today's standards, we got fifty-year-old man, baby, and women babies out there, you know. Well, but, but it's okay. I mean, there were some around that end, but I think about the fact that maybe it's more. This is what happens when you surround people with ways of knowing, governance formations that will feed that kind of creativity. Because he talks about creativity too, and so cultural meaning making. The reason we we separate cultural meaning making from movement and memory, of course, in terms of those two categories in our Afghan states framework is because cultural meaning making marks what you ask the question, what culture, what texts and practices were created in the moment of time and space you're studying in that moment of 50s, 60s and 70s. I mean, think about that in terms of governance. You know, you know let me apologize. Um, what do you mean? As you're talking, I'm going to apologize because as you're, as you're talking, I'm watching again. We haven't been in Nubia a whole year. Um, narratives coming up would be maybe two years in the end of February, uh, March of 2023. Yes. And I'm already watching a level of creativity that I knew, mm. was, you know, like your raise just out of office hours coming up. He's writing a book, you know, we yeah. got Nubians writing books that, you know, and they're banging up against each other. We have whole communities being formed and in yeah. an environment where everybody's doing something everybody's doing something like you don't want to not be doing something. So this is what we doing. What we doing? Liberty. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Where do I get in? That's right. There has to be an environment around that. And so That's right. That's talking right. about the, the power of the 20 somethings in the 1950s and 60s, there was an environment where you had a place to go to be That's uh, right. revolutionary. And you, you know, folks sat around when we talk about the black Panthers, that those were kids in college, right? Yes. So young people in the community. That's right. Talk about SNCC. You know, those are college kids that are yeah, sitting around right. thinking yeah. about liberation. So we have to, you know, and, and we've gotten atrophied and lazy because we've been fed mm -hmm. again this capitalism. Ah, there it is again. Or maybe, or maybe the maybe the maybe the creativity has just been applied in a different form of social structure. I mean, because cultural meaning making is produced within a social structure. In some ways, it's the language of whatever moment it is in. So you know, I don't know that there's necessary, uh, there is, of course, because the society is deteriorating, but there's still this desire to be in community. When I look at, I mean, these cats getting shot, you know, from Tennessee, I remember when you, when young Dolph got shot a little while back, and the young people, we were in the hip-hop class at the time, and they were saying, you know, young Dolph, young Dolph, I'm talking about Memphis, man. these guys are still in formations, but the formations have been invaded and corroded by a social structure that says, these are the only options you have. So if you're in my community, you're we're together. But if you're not in my community, I'm against you. But that circle has shrunken. So as we're listening to, they're no younger or older than Smokey Robinson. They're no younger and older than Gamble and Huff, the sound of Philadelphia. You understand? Those two communities in particular, Detroit and Philadelphia, you go to the 1960s, 70s, 
you know, before Motown goes to, to California. I mean, you're thinking about those are cultural meaning making moments that are formed and are the voice of governance formations in African communities that are surrounded by, suffused by, working in the social structures they find themselves in differently. Some of it is because it's the residual effect of apartheid, legal apartheid, and immediately the afterlives of that segregation, which persists to this day. But the context in which governance formations work is very important. When you hear Philadelphia, the sound of Philadelphia, Philadelphia International Records, Sigma Sound Studios, when you hear Harold Melville and the Blue Notes, when you hear the OJs come in here and get some of that stuff from Tom Bell and them boys and Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, they are working literally around the clock at, at Sigma Sound Studios. So when you hear, you know, Teddy Pendergrass, who joins that group, Harold Melvin is the leader, right? And as they tell the story, it was the Blue Notes. And then Harold Melvin was like, I'm concerned because <laughs> you got a whole, all these people around the country think that, that this guy singing is Harold Melvin. It wasn't Harold Melvin, it was Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> he said, so we're going to rebrand this as Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. But when you hear, wake up everybody, time to reach a new day. Mm-mm-mm. When he says, you know, wake up all the doctors, make the old people well. They don't have so very long before their judgment day. When you hear Teddy singing, it's Gamble and Huff. Tom Bell and them, and, 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 but, but it's not one man. He's got a gift, but that gift is shaped by governance formation. And that governance formation is coming out of a social structure where black people are unified enough to rebel, to resist, to have a thesis coming out of their way of knowing the world won't get no better if we just let it be. When you hear that, that's not accidental. Now, that doesn't mean that that music isn't being made today. It just means that the social structure has changed and it has eroded in some ways, reformed the governance formations. This is what Walter Rodney, this is why he's constantly saying, you can't help, we can't help ourselves by being only critical and turning away from that. The, the concept of grounding requires us to listen to what people are saying. We talked about that Monday night. Remember the brother from Philadelphia? We had that conversation. After the brother from Cleveland comes, how do we reach these young people? And I, of course, I thought about the Wu. We talked about Wu-Tang, right? I mean, you know, cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. When, you know, the brother says, and it was Inspector Deck. Thank you, Uraeus. You reminded me. Uraeus said, you know, I'm trying to kick this you kick the truth to the young black youth. But Shorty, don't want to hear what I'm kicking in his ear. He's smoking sex. Said, in other words, now here is a hip hop artist saying that these youngsters don't want to hear what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to tell you cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. But I'm saying the reason we do that is because that was what was left to us out here in these streets, in Shaolin Land, in the five boroughs of New York and beyond. I'm not saying cash rules everything around me cream get the money because that's a deep value i have i'm saying that is the survival technique and he says you know i'm trying to kick this he ain't trying to hear and he said well what you trying to hear what, what you trying to kick to him he said that life is hectic in other words this is the this is the the the, 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 the social structure that has so disturbed our being that our form of governance in this moment including in our cultural meaning making reflects this environment now we have to improve that in the 70s, if it be Philadelphia International saying the world won't get no better if I 
we unless we just let it, you know, if we just let it be, if it is Motown, Marvin Gaye, followed by Stevie Wonder, who stays with Motown, but remember, looking at looking at Marvin Gaye chafing against those 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 constrictors of this Hitsville, this factory kind of thing, which has the creativity, but it's in a tight governance formation of one sort, Wonder and Gaye. Nah, and that's when you see we talked about this last year. Stevie Wonder breakout. You got Inner Visions, The Secret Life of Plans, Songs in the Key of Life. I'm moving out because Marvin Gaye showed the way that concept album, the first commercially producing concept album that we know of, right? In terms of um, uh, let's get it on. You see Marvin Gaye as early as '65 with Dancing in the Street, but two years before that, Holland Dozier Holland with Heat Wave. That's about love could it be a devil in me or is this the way love's supposed to be well guess what the people in the social structure fighting the social structure resisting this oppression who in this governance formation you wrote it for one thing but by 67 when they set fire to detroit and rightfully so in 68 when they set fire to newark rightfully so in 68 when they killed out the king and 100 cities go up in flames the sound of motown is right there with them i know barry i know you wanted to balance it to get the honey stuff and get the black market but guess what these negroes singing dancing in the street throwing molotov cocktails in the window and guess what else they singing could it be a devil in me, or is this the way love's supposed to be? It's like a heat wave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could it be a devil in me? In other words, these rioters are out here destroying the country and democracy, and they're against me. Could it be a devil in me? Or is this the way love's supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, take a good look at my face. Oh, the smile looks out of place. If you look closer. It's easy to trace the tracks of my tears. Smokey Robinson talking about love and hurt. But at some point you say, you don't know us social structure. You don't know us. In fact, if there's a smile on my face, it's only there trying to fool the public. <laughs> when it comes down to fooling you, though, ah, that's quite a different subject. There's some sad things known to man, but ain't too much sadder than the tears of a clown. Meaning what? Sometimes it's that Negro who you thought was on your side. But when you push them over, oh, if there's a smile on my face, it's only there trying to fool the public. Sometimes I think about our brother Henry Louis Gates when they arrested his ass on the porch of his own house up there in Massachusetts. And he was cussing the police out, talking about their mama. Said, oh, bruh, wait, you maybe you need to put on Smokey Robinson because I, I saw that smile on your face every time on PBS. But I guess if it was a smile on your face, you're only there trying to fool the public. The simplicity of cultural meaning making that comes out of a way of knowing you know something about black life. And Motown writers knew something about black life. In fact, I'll tell you one more story from the Holland Dozier Holland catalog as told by Lamont Dozier, another of my favorites. And this is one of those Supreme favorites. He said, we was growing up coming to the movies. There's a man named for the shadow in <laughs> the radio, <laughs> Lamont Holland. He said, when we was growing up, you go to the movies and you realize that every hero in the movies had like music that accompanied them when they come in. Right. And he said, I remembered that. I think about what's our brother, Keenan Ivory Wayans, and I'm going to get you sucker. Remember KRS one of them? He got his own theme music because Bernie Casey and Jim Brown and all them uh, told him 
you know, because these are the guys who made those movies in the 70s, right? Fred Williamson, The Hammer, Three the Hard Way, out of it. It was like, and when you see them movies, when they come in, you got certain music, right? And remember Bernie Casey told Keenan Ivory Wayans, and I'm going to get you, sucker. He said, what's that? That's my theme music. Because it was a comedy, right? He came in, you hear, he's like, what you doing, man? That's the, he's like, every good hero should have a theme song. Every good hero should have one. So then Keenan Ivory Wayans, by the end of the movies, uh, in the movie, you hear Jack, 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 Jack of Trades, right? You see KRS-One and they're coming. Who is that? This is my theme music. It's like, oh, okay, bro. He is the Jack of Spades. One guy hasn't bought, been sold. He is the Jack of Spades. Jack, 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 Jack. Okay, all right, good. Lamont Dozier said, we went to the movies. It's like every hero, every lead, you come in, they got a theme song. So what does he do? <sighs> Whenever you're near me. I hear a symphony. That song <laughs> is based on the social structure. Dozier's like, you know, that's love. When I see you, when I hear you, I hear a symphony. In other words, the music comes in with me. Mm. You are the first time of my life. You are, in fact, I have a theme somewhere. I say, I call it my theme song. My, my dear friend and brother, Nick Payton, the great jazz artist. Uh, took a, a lecture I gave on that one of those lectures I gave on Carl G. Wilson for the school district, and he was so uh, caught up in the information. And of course, he's listening with a musical ear. This is a son of New Orleans, right? Uh, a grandson of Louis Armstrong down there with all those other cats, right? I mean, all of the um, all of the great musicians, the Marcellus family, of course, um, so many others. He. Um, very good friends with what's my man's name who made transition roy uh not roy eldridge that's the previous uh generation uh it'll come to me somebody will put it in the chat because i'll look in the chat in a minute see. but at any rate he took my voice and he emailed me because i didn't know him you know and now of course we're very good friends he he emailed me and he said roy hargrove is what i'm thinking of, the, the the trumpet uh new orleans all these cats new Orleans. he he and uh he and nick around the same generation and so he took my voice and he put it on uh, a song. It's, he named the song Kimathi. That's my Kikuyu name, African name. And so when the album came out, it was on the Afro-Caribbean mixtape album. I was like, yo, that's crazy. He put that in there. And I'm talking about ways of knowing. I'm talking about literally these governors, these, these categories. I'm like, man, that's crazy. And, he, and then you hear this music in the back. Da -da 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 -da. He got the bass coming in. And he's got the, and you know, Nick is a multi-instrumentalist. I've seen him literally. He played a horn. He'll also be on the keyboard at the same time. I mean, it's really quite something when you had that kind of gift. Again, coming out of that community of New Orleans, like like uh, Roy Hargrove, like the Marcellus, they're not just individuals playing. They're playing with, against, alongside, in tandem with each other. They're pushing each other. And so... When you hear Holland Dozier Holland with I Hear a Symphony, know that the story behind that is Holland is like, yeah, man, you go to the movies, everybody got a song, but guess what? We all have songs because there are people in our lives when we see them, it triggers a certain type of happiness. And when I, whenever you're near, I hear a symphony. <laughs> and then he gives it to Diana Ross and it becomes one of those hits, that string of hits. Now, finally, and the obituaries you'll read or read probably since Monday of uh, Lamont Dozier, it's going to be the Sound of America, Motown, all the number one hits. But the governance, the governance formations inside that, that is who we are to each other. And yes, it is very human. Everybody can hear, everybody can enjoy. But why do those songs endure? 
cultural meaning making asks the question in our African states framework, what music, art, dance, text practices do Africans create in that moment to mark that experience in time? Everyone around the world, are you ready for a brand new beat? Yes, we are in 1965. We're past we're at the middle of the, the this Voting Rights Act, getting ready to come up, had the Civil Rights Act in 1964 here in the United States. But the anti-colonial movement is pushing ahead in full thrust. We passed the year of Africa five, year, uh, five years before that, 1960. The anti-colonial movement in the Caribbean, even though they achieved out of enslavement in the 1830s and 40s, now, 100 years later, they push forward now for independence. Everyone around the world, are you ready for a brand new beat? And then that becomes part of soundtrack because the other category, movement and memory, asked this question, how did or do people of African descent remember those particular moments in time in the past? And anytime I go in, I'll play music before class usually. And I, you know, sometimes I'll put on songs that you don't know nothing about this song when it came out. The cultural meaning making of the moment said I've been really trying I've been really trying, baby, <laughs> trying to hold back this feeling for so long. And if you feel like I feel, baby, you are 18 whole years old. Why is your eyes closed? Let's get it on. Like you were there. Marvin Gaye was gone before you even thought about being conceived. <laughs> At this point, maybe even your parents are basically, but the whole point is movement and memory says, how did or do Africans remember that experience? There's a reason why when a Lamont Dozier makes transition in our community, everybody is now filling up their mind with the things that mark the contribution of that collective, that Motown collective. Same thing with Philadelphia International. Same thing with what Jerry Butler calls the sounds of Chicago. He said there were so many different sounds that you can't say like Detroit, the sound Motown, the Motown sound, sound of Detroit, Philadelphia International, the sound of Philadelphia. He said there were many, so many different in Chicago that you can't really see our pop staples. You got Curtis Mayfield. You got Mahalia Jackson coming. I mean, by way of New Orleans, you got all these people. So you can't really say that the same way. But movement and memory talks about that momentum. And at the core of that, in terms of a way of knowing, when Lamont Dozier says love was the foundation, that's what he's talking about. And so that was one of the people I wanted to mention of the two that made transition. Uh, this week, because we 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 pause in a moment like this to elevate figures who make transition, not just because of their individual contribution, but what that individual contribution says about the impact, the impact of being representative. In other words, when a cultural meaning maker is being representative, that means that they are listening. They are grounding and out of their own unique lens, fueled by the lens of community in those governance formation, they are distilling ways of knowing that resonate with us because those songs are very simple. They are so very simple. And yet it's some, in some ways, they are so simple that they are deceptively simple. I said I was going to stop. I'm just thinking about other hits. He told, no, 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 it wasn't him. It was uh, Janie Bradford. Janie Bradford was a, a songwriter at Motown. And guess what she told this professor? She told our brother, Larry Crow, interviewed her for the History Makers. 
By the way, Larry Crow also interviewed Michelle Nichols. I mean, I mean, if I said it before, I mean, everybody, man. But anyway, she told him about a song that Lamont Dozier said he wrote because he was talking to this woman, this sister, and she said her son was in the military, he was overseas, and he was coming home, and his name is Jimmy Mack. <laughs> Jay Bradford told Larry. Lamont Dozier said that name stuck with me. And after that conversation, I just went and wrote Jimmy, Jimmy, oh, Jimmy Mack, when are you coming back? Now, it's just off the name, but it was the listener from that sister. So I said, when Lamont Dozier makes transition, like anybody who is representative, who has that genius to have a vision grounded, grounding, grounded in listening and distilling and, and then pulling that emotion out, those people endure. Those people endure because the tropes endure. And so that was the uh, second of the people who made transition since we were with each other. The other one made transition. I got news of it right after we finished. Uh, uh, that after, yes, last, uh, uh, last Saturday afternoon, again, our brother and your colleague there on the faculty at Hunter College, uh, Anthony Brown, Tony Brown, Tony texted me to let me know that um, the great James Turner had made transition and uh, talk about Walter Rodney, who a lot of folks here and be a lot of folks watching later uh, know, but James Turner is a name that, you know, probably isn't known even as well as, uh, as Walter Rodney, James Turner for, well, since 1969, he and his wife, Janice, their children, residents of Ithaca, New York, he was on the faculty for decades at Cornell University. And the life of James Turner, I want to say a few words about James Turner. But before I do that, I want to pause here and see if there's anything you want to um, to, to say about anything we've been talking about so far. Because, again, I've been going kind of along and I know I get fired up. I start talking about the music. So <laughs> I don't know if there's anything, Prof, you want to jump in with. Um, um, oh. no, no, I'm sorry. I'm in in the chat. Um, also, what are folks saying? Everything, you know, the Tony Brown. No, not the Tony Brown. Oh um, yeah, no, 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 no. Tony Brown with an E. Yeah, Tony Brown, who is was the head of Africana Studies. Uh, and was it was it Puerto Rican in Africa? Yes, Black Puerto Rican Studies at the beginning, and they changed. Yes, at Hunter yes. College. So Hunter I've had extensive yeah. conversations with him. Yeah, although um, the other Tony Brown is still around, I don't think he's in great health. But you know, he's cats in their 90s now. In fact, today is the birthday of Russell Lee Adams, who was the longtime chair of African Studies at Howard, who hired me. Dr. Adams, I think, turns 92 today. These are we blessing to have those elders. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's not that Tony Brown we're talking about. We're talking about Tony here. Yeah, Dr. Tony Brown. Yes. And while, while we're here also today, uh, on this day in 1881, uh, Spelman College opened the first African-American nursing school. Yes. Uh, I think about, you know, it's like we were doing some stuff. No question. And Spelman's still there. They, they, there. Yep. Yeah, they, they, they just had their uh, ceremony started by Dr. Cole, Janetta Cole, where she has women drummers. Y'all go sign over. These black women in white, they drum these sisters into the circle and the families then pass them off to the faculty at Spelman. There's a new president at Spelman. She was out there cheerleading. Um, beautiful. Now, did, what, what do you think about this, Prof? I think we mentioned it. Uh, one of the freshmen, incoming freshmen, her mother, Angelina Joali, moved her into the dorm. 
when those black kids that her and Brad Pitt. I heard that. So was filming, no question. I've seen the picture. <laughs> and, and you know, like it's interesting. We have um we have Nubians that are melanemic. No question. And um, and I think about again Luozo, I think it's Viola Luozo who got off her couch in Michigan and came down and got shot yeah. for helping people. Uh, right. Right like the 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 goal is for everybody to to be free, literally. That's right. You know, right. break the binds of this 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 power structure, that's and that's you know, so, so for Angelina Jolie to raise a a black girl in this country, come on, then aspire to go to Spelman speaks volumes about the cultural um, infusion that was happening in that household. And I think she was very intentional about all of the children from different places, from Cambodia, what have you, right. that she brought into her home. That and, they and, just, and just know that she ain't the first to do that. You gotta go back to Josephine Baker for that, what she called the rainbow tribe. No question. <laughs> but isn't, isn't that the goal? I mean, shouldn't everybody wanna know yeah. who they are and know themselves? In if, even if you're raising a child that's not in your culture, because I think about the Handmaid's Tale and, um, uh, what's his name? Mitt Romney, and it, there's a whole lot of folk that got children from other cultures in their families. Yes. But I feel like they're doing what what they did with the Native Americans. They're just completely stripping them of everything that makes oh, no them who they are. No and question. we got black. I, I'm raising black children. I'm not racist. But are you teaching those children where they come from and what what they're about and who their peoples are? And are you? Are you infusing them? So Zahara going to Spelman, I was like, Angelina Jolie is doing a lot. And no I ain't mad at her for that. No question. And I know my people down there, my man Rich Benson down there, that's going to take care of They got some faculty down there that's going to take care of them. And then the, and she's in the Atlanta University Center. So, I mean, you got to, you know, um, shout out to, you know, all of the incoming students who are moving in all over uh the howard law students did got their pins yesterday at the pinning ceremony the freshmen are moving in this week tuskegee uh, hey shout out to the bulldogs alabama a&m my mom home state uh and all of that is there and and, and, and i guess you know in terms of dr turner i think about the fact that james turner a son of uh he's born in brooklyn raised in manhattan nurtured in black institutions, not HBCUs, tried to create a HBCU in the middle of one of the oldest white schools, an Ivy League school. And after he retired, that school it did the best they could to dismantle what he had done. And there will be people who said, that's not true. And I'm saying, let me pause, catch myself, because I will smile sometime. And that's one reason why I love... Uh, Tears of a clown because of the smile on my face. I'm only there trying to fool the public <laughs> when it comes down to fooling y'all. Well, that's quite a different subject. You know, a lot of times if, if yeah, don't 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 try me on this conversation because I, unlike most people talking about it, know what it's like to try to build inside institutions that were not designed for black liberation. Mm. I was department chair for a long time, and there are conversations I've had with James Turner with Leonard Jeffries and it, we all don't have to agree on everything but unless you've tried to do that and had administrative responsibility the respect I have for James Turner is cannot be cannot really be confined and contained James Turner is not the first person to talk about Africana studies you see Carter Woodson W.B. Du Bois in the 1930s writing and talking about this Africana 
encyclopedia. You have people right, but James Turner in many ways is the person. In fact, I didn't pull a lot of books, but if you want to read about James Turner generally, uh, probably the best single volume to read is a book by my friend and brother Scott Brown, who was one of uh, Ngozi Brown, who was one of James Turner's students. He pulled together a lot of his former students um, who write about James Turner in this book. And it also has a lot of Dr. Turner's uh, articles. Uh, Kim Crenshaw is in here. Dylan Rodriguez is in here. Scott Brown thinks, uh, thanks a lot of people uh, who were affiliated with or students of James Turner, you know, Jared Ball, a number of others at the, uh, um, at the Africana Center in at Cornell. It's called Discourse on Africana Studies, James Turner and the Paradigm and Paradigms of Knowledge. Scott Brown does a very good job on this. Let me read to you from another book. This is a book that Dr. Turner uh, put together, edited, called The Next Decade. It's called The Next Decade, Theoretical and Research Issues in Africana Studies. Selected papers from the Africana Studies and Research Center's 10th Anniversary Conference, 1980. 1980. Uh, and I want to talk, I want to talk a little bit about James Turner today because Turner to bring forward that one word from Lamont Dozier, love. James Turner loved black people. James Turner, in fact, let me let me go right here to the, what I was going to say. A lot of people, because, you know, we're all off into labeling and first this and pioneer this. And that's not important to a person like James Turner. But it is important in a moment like this for us to think about him as a representative person, a representative. In other words, somebody who distills after through grounding the kind of ways of knowing of a people. James Turner, as I said, raised in New York, apprenticed by some of those great, great master teachers. Again, the university, I want y'all to think about the university. Let's all think about the university as we think about it. Okay, you got it? Got that pitch in your head? Okay, <laughs> set it aside. It's in the social, we're going to lock that in the social structure for a minute. It's a smile on my face. It's like wearing them hot ass robes march into commencement with. It's only there trying to fool the public. We can't even take them robes off. So you start talking about the university. Let's just leave that in locked up in the social structure. Just for a second. We're going to go over it in a minute because we can't understand our governance formations unless we put them in the context of the social structures we're operating in. That's why when you see our cultural meaning making at any given moment in time, it is in some ways, not always, because capitalism figures out the way it can extract value without having revolution, which is why a lot of this stuff that gets pushed that we buy and think it's our creativity is really them curating what they can take from us and keep us stupid at the same time. So it's authentic and inauthentic at the same, certainly not representative, but at any rate, the, the struggle that James Turner undertook was to as he writes, literally create a black university concept within the white university concept. And there are many things I learned from him. I, many things I learned from Russell Adams at Howard, Nick Nelson at Ohio State. Many things I learned from John Clark, who spent the, the the end part of his academic life at Hunter College, but before that, James Turner brought him to Cornell, along with Yosef Benyakinen, along with visiting lecturers, places to stay, Ron Daniels, along with 
Walter Rodney, along with Eleanor Trailer, along with so many others, because for 40 years, almost, James Turner convened Black people and created a Black space at Cornell. Bob Harris, still around, Robert Harris, who rose to the rank of provost at Cornell, one of those early people affiliated with the Africana Studies Center. This is what James Turner writes. He says, the concept Africana, this is where I'm going with this, because you'll see, if you see anything at all, which you probably won't see a thing, which is why we're going to spend a few minutes on him today. James Turner is credited with, ah, credit, there it is, like mortgage, huh? the language of capitalism, credited with. Is anybody debited with anything? We should be debited with everything. But anyway, credited with James Turner is affiliated with the concept Africana studies in a way that gives him, quote unquote, credit for coining the term. Now, if you said that to him, he would probably just smile because James Turner is one of the coolest black. James Turner, it's a terrible analogy, but you know, I love analogies. So in some ways, James Turner was the Nat Cole of black academia that code was just cool james turner was just cool that new york cool you know what i'm saying uh james turner well brother what i'm thinking is you could do it that way but you might not want to do that you know what i'm saying <laughs> just call me i mean y'all go look up james turner James Turner could calm me down many times. The first time I met James Turner was 1992, National Council of Black Studies, of which he was a founding member, 1975, 76, birth, uh, birth of Maxwell, uh, Maxwell Roddy, Perry Hall. These are all academic conversations. I won't get too deep into them, but some of y'all I know do into that kind of thing. So I'm just going to mention enough of them because James Turner is a giant. He should have been on the front page of the New York Times and the Financial Times today. He certainly should be on the front page of a lot of papers. His transition last Saturday when Tony text me and let me know and then jared text me and let me ask yeah yeah i heard from tony i talked to tony because i talked to tony earlier this this summer about him they had started going to you know make their way to ithaca to be with him and be the family and, and give conversation anyway let me get to the point this is what james turner writes in 1980 the concept africana is derived from the philosophy of the african continuum and african consociation which posits fundamental interconnects and interconnections in the global black experience. Consequently, curriculum that is predicated upon a model of black studies that begins with the African background and next the transformation slavery into the African diaspora from which the African-American experience derives textual meaning. The black world is perceived as patterns within a trilateral relationship between Africa, the African Caribbean and the African Americas with an S, Latin, Central, North, with understandably primarily primary concentration on African-America. Moreover, all segments of the black world population live under social conditions directly related to the international political economy of advanced industrial capitalism. It's 1980. I'm going to stop there because you really, to give him full credit, we would have, maybe we'll do a, an office hours. I just said, it. maybe we just, between Rodney and whatever we do next, maybe I'll scan a piece from, 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 um, from Turner. We can talk about Turner. James Turner is quote unquote credited with coining the term Africana studies. I'm sorry, I just want to wait. Come on back. What were you thinking? No, I just I thought you were wind down. So I was Oh yeah, no, no, no. I want to I want to mention a few things about him. Uh Deron Bennett. 
spent time up there. Uh, so many others. In fact, let me just talk a little bit about him. Um, let me just talk about him just for a second here. He was, he and his wife, I think Central Michigan University, they had gone to, uh, to go to school and then to Chicago. It was at, He was at Northwestern University doing graduate study. And when you talk about Northwestern University in the mid to mid 1960s to late 1960s, you're talking about everybody from Sterling Stuckey is over there, John Bracey, he and John Bracey uh, studied together. They were young cats together studying. And of course, all the people around this, what became the Center for Inner City Studies at Northeastern Illinois University, that's Jacob Carruthers, Anderson Thompson, Harold Pates, all that crew. Pates still walks the earth in his 90s. Um, you know, this, this is the moment when you see the birth of Black Studies. And what you see Turner as a young man who, from his New York years, growing up in New York, knew the governance structure scholars. Richard B. Moore, who owned that bookstore, the Frederick Douglass bookstore, a precursor to uh, Una Malzak at Liberation Bookstore. Uh, Mr. Michaud, Louis Michaud, who had his bookstore there, the, the, the House of Proper uh, Knowledge and Proper Propaganda, as it may be referred to, it can be referred to. Uh, James Turner knew Malcolm X. Came under the influence of Malcolm X and also the influence of someone who was one of Malcolm X's teachers as well a brother who he became very close to who apprenticed him, John Henry Clark. This was James Turner. These are the people who trained James Turner, really gave him his grounding training, like Oliver Jones and them boys in some ways gave Carter Woodson his before he ever set foot at Harvard. But at any rate, Turner, uh, James Janice Turner, they end up in Chicago. He's at Northwestern University when Northwestern engages in the struggle for black studies that consumed a number of campuses at the, at, 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 in the United States. A lot of these schools had their 50th anniversary of black studies. In fact, that's where I met uh, Professor Hunter, uh, the president of Hunter College, Jennifer Rapp, was at the 50th anniversary of Hunter College's program. Tony and, and his comrades had put together something. They raised the money for a John Henry Clark uh, reading room and lounge. And so I went up there as one of the last pre-COVID trips I took, 1969. 69 is when Howard University's program started. 69 is when a number of different universities, you know, Ohio State, Cornell goes to 1969 because Turner, who is seen as a leader in the Black Studies movement, as a graduate student at Northwestern University, and there's a whole background story to that. Uh, there's a number of, of good books on it. Martha Biondi's book on the Black Revolution. Ibram Kendi, when he was writing academic books, does one called The Black Student Movement. There's a number of books that write about that. Uh, Fabio Rojas from Black Power to Black Studies, those three come most immediately to mind. But again, I put all of them in terms of a social structure analysis into the category of what Anderson Thompson would call slave rebellion research, meaning what? Very well documented, archival holdings, all this kind of stuff. And what is the purpose? Well, you know, it's to track this history. Yeah. So is the movement over? No. But now somebody got a playbook to how to stop it again. And it always, as I said, these analyses of these movements usually run into the ditch because these university press is not going to let y'all write about. Don't. Why would you even want them to let you write about black liberation for white validation? You know, slave rebellion research in some ways. It's not a critique of the authors because I know the game. I live in the game. We live in a capitalist society. I live in the university system. But as school is getting ready, it's starting all over the country. I recognize, as you do, Prof, I mean, you hear that because I'm grounded here in this governance formation, it's hardly noticeable. It used to be my academic calendar went from the end of university uh, instruction in May, going to freedom schools all summer, 
Then we go to Kemet in August. And right now we would be just getting ready to come back from Kemet after a couple of weeks, a little over two weeks. And then we go right into that. Well, now narrative Nubia in class, office hours, all the classes being offered from Beatty to Amon. Now we got all this other stuff coming in, all the formations that are coming in. This is the, this is the rhythm. This is the renewed normal. This is the rhythm. So now these other places that used to kind of set that rhythm still persist and are even strengthened by the fact that they are no longer at the core of that intellectual work. James Turner, at a moment in the 60s, Nathan Hare, who was let go from Howard and becomes the uh, chair of the first African-American studies department at San Francisco State the year before that, 68, what you see is that Turner is at the core of this struggle of all these women and men who are fighting because they're students in the social structure universities, but they come out of the governance formations of community. And they want that to dictate the terms of these universities they're coming in and also the academic appendages to universities. Like for example, the African Studies Association, which is founded in the 1950s in part as a conspiracy between European countries like England and the United States to kind of surveil these African countries that are coming in and into independence. So under the guise of research and assistance, what they really doing is gonna train some spies. So when you went into the African Studies Association, there were no black people running the African Studies Association. These are the dons of studying Africa for dissection. So you saw a straight Negro running around in the African Studies Association meeting. You know, you I don't trust this Negro. How the hell did you get here? And they're gonna have kind of Africans coming in there, they're gonna kind of recruit some because they gotta be real careful about it. But then because they want to manage Africa and continue to exploit it. So this organization. I'll come to that in about 30 seconds because James Turner comes out of, he's in graduate school at Northwestern when the students at Howard out of the rebellion of 60, 1967 have a conference, host a conference called the Toward a Black University Conference, several thousand people. And I resisted the urge to go pull my copy of Black World. They did three consecutive years, a special issue every year toward the Black University Conference. And one of them, the middle year has Howard University Library on the cover of Black World and it says notes from the toward the black university conference that same howard university logo that's on one side now while jump man on the other side but anyway in 1968 it is about the black university because why are they there they want to say what would a black university look like because guess what the students who protested at howard took over the administration building they said they want howard to become a black university wait it is a black university no no it's a black face university the curriculum looks like cornell the, no, but we have black stuff. Yeah, and everybody who's taught black stuff over here, E. Franklin Frazier, uh, go ask Ralph Bunch, go ask Sterling Brown. Everybody who tried to do it, Owen Dodson, everybody who tried to do it, you gave them hell. Now we want the whole thing to be remade. Who are you? We are the students. And here go two or three faculty who are with us. Well, this nigga, bro, we're going to let go. Nathan Harry, get them the hell out the paint. Okay, but that ain't going to stop us. We're going to take over the building. Who were undergrads at that time? Felicia Allen, Debbie Allen out of... Uh, uh, Jack Yates High School in Houston. Yes, that same Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen, they students, right? I mean, so this is all that black power movement. Turner comes to the Toward of Black University Conference, 1969-68. The students from Cornell come down to the conference. These are the same students. as a famous picture of a brother who ends up being on the Cornell Board of Trustees. In fact, I forget his name right now. Tight, straight? No, the, the hall they took was straight hall in Cornell. 
And they take over the building in part because the white boys try to evict them out the building. They go get guns. They ain't gonna give us that because somebody had burned a cross at the black women's dorm. The name of that dorm was uh, Dirigi Hall. Remember the Emma Johnson Dirigi Wari, the, the, the new library that Ionelli and her family and the community and a lot of us have supported. Wari, Wari was the name. Wari Hall, Wari Hall. They, somebody had burned across these black women in, in the at Cornell. And these black people weren't taking it. These students weren't taking it. So they took over the administration building, put out the people who were there for family, for parents weekends, something like that. And then when they when the football players decided they're going to take the hall back, these white football players and cats was like, you got to bring AWS to get AWS. And there's a famous picture after they negotiate with the administration and get their concessions of them coming out of straight hall with the gun, with the bullets all the way across and the pump guns like, yeah, the rifles, you're not going to nah. Now, part of the negotiation was they would start a black studies unit. And when they heard James Turner later on that year at the Tour de Black University Conference at Howard with thousands of others, they said, because Turner would by then had a reputation as a graduate student. He's one of the leaders of that movement Northwest. And they said, we want this guy. Long story short, Turner and, and the Turner family goes to Ithaca and they stay there for the rest of his life. They developed something called the Africana studies. In fact, that's why I say this is a great book because this is 10 years into it. The, um, the, the, the next decade they developed something called the Africana studies and research center. The brilliant thing about this, it's like a HBCU. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. It's like a black university inside the white university. Cause St. as St. Clair Drake said, James Turner says this himself. He says, Every field in education is white studies. We need black studies. But what is black studies? And he defines what it is. It is self-determining. It connects us globally. This Africana concept is broad and it must do this. And it is all about community and service. And so everything wired at Cornell that comes through that center and the affiliate places, the black dorms, the black service organizations, the community, Ithaca, the town, the county, he, he, and, he and or his wife end up on all these boards. There's kids go to the public school, the children go to the public schools there. All that becomes in the service of black people. It, James Turner's philosophy of Africana studies is at once the most expansive and inclusive philosophy you can imagine. His concept of Africana studies is, is it for our people? In fact, one of his great comrades, the great Ron Walters, always used to ask. So in Sanchez, like, yeah, how do we free us? Ron Walters would ask, yeah, what does this have to do with the liberation of black people? So I'm not going to have ideological rifts with you. I'm not going to have debate. I will have debates and discussions because that's part of the critical analysis. We have to criticize each other, but we're doing it with an objective in mind. What? Getting together and building unity. Not just operational unity. Let us be together. It's got to be for black people. So if James Turner might not agree with you philosophically or intellectually on certain points, but it would not prevent him from supporting you. There wasn't an ideological position at the African Studies Center that he didn't support. But when he went in, here's where we go, institution building. And that's why this space is indispensable. You can't do that and expect it to continue forever. It's not your space. So struggle was at the center of this fight. This is at the struggle of all formations, K-12, kindergarten 12, undergraduate school, graduate school. That's the struggle that a lot of people get caught up in and they write books for years and they go on TV and they debate. And they're always talking about who we are to other people. 
because that's part of the struggle. And it's a necessary conversation, but it is not sufficient. Struggle is not enough. We must also have victory. Now, how do you have victory in a space like that? Well, what's how it looked for James Turner? The first thing they did was, and he wrote a whole paper on it. Let me say, I think Scott and them have it in here, but I have it in the original, but I'm going to look here. He, um, he put together, yeah, Black Studies, a concept and a plan. So when he came in, the, the, I'm sorry, he, he finished when the Cornell students saw him at Howard toward a black university conference. They went back to Ithaca and told the leadership, the administration at Ithaca, we want him. They got him. And James Turner moved to Cornell. Now, you talk about sacrifice. Prof, you from that region, Cornell, upstate New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine staying there. You're a New Yorker. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, he's constantly back and forth. But your home base is there, and you went there because there was a cracking time. And James Turner, oh, man. James Turner poured resources into that center. It's almost like, it's almost like he wedged himself. The Turner family, James James Turner, their children, they wedged themselves. James Turner wedged himself in that center. His proposal was when you hire faculty to the Africana Studies Center, their appointment, their hiring, their tenure, their promotion is the exclusive purvey of this center. There will be no joint appointments. Now, you know, after you retired, first thing they did was get rid of that. Why, you Negroes can't just give tenure to each other and you create your own damn standards. Don't you know you must have a white supervisor? And you're Black studies isn't a discipline. African studies isn't a discipline. It's interdisciplinary. So you must have a joint appointment in history or philosophy. And these Negroes now, Oh, they're very much white back in there because they heed the voice of their master. You love your master. Don't say you don't love your master. Show me you love your, you don't love your master. And don't show me by saying, oh no, I have now, I'm doing training in Africana studies and black studies and African and African-American studies. My concentration is sociology. Okay. No. Turner said, it's gotta be in this formation. We have to have control. And they were able to do that because once he wedged in there, he absorbed the pouring into that wedge that they had in that crack of Cornell that was caused by that takeover and the moment in that social in the social structure these students were, these children were resisting. He poured into it the people, the people. Turner's allegiances were always to the people, so there was never a conundrum. His generous he had such a generous spirit. Remember, Lamont Doge said love. That spread the message, this love. And so everybody claims James Turner, and rightfully so. Now, there were moments when he had to calm me down. I, mean, I was in grad school. We had a National Council of Black Studies meeting back in 96. It was here in D.C. Oh, man, I was. James Turner was the kind of cat that could calm you down. And it was a great honor of mine. He was one of the, he was the second president of the African Heritage Studies Association. Let me tie that off. The ASA, racist as hell. But he was going to ASA meetings. John Henry Clark was going to ASA meetings. This is 1967, 68, 69. They end up with a clash because the African Studies Association, like a lot of these white academic associations, races. Sociological associations, psychological associations, social work, all of them. And this is the moment, 67, 8, 9, 70, where you see the black caucuses in these uh, white organizations, professional organizations form. The American Library Association, all of them. That's where you see the black caucus of the ALA, E.J. Josie and all of them. That's where you see in the social workers. You see the black social workers caucus. This is where you see in the American Psychological Association, the black, black, uh, the black caucus. This is where you see in 
the African Studies Association, they're going to pull together a caucus. But then this is also where you see the founding of the governance organizations. It's not enough to have a black caucus in the American Psychological Association. Let us put together our own governance formation. 1972 St. Louis, Robert Williams and his crew. This is where you get the Association of Black Psychologists. This is where you get the Association of Black Social Workers. This is where you get in breaking with the African Studies Association, the walkout, Leonard Jeffries, Marimba Ani, now Donna Richards at the time, Donna Moses, you, Donna Richards, you have them, James Turner. These are the students of Clark and them. They found something called the African Heritage Studies Association. John Henry Clark, the first president, 1969, Montreal, 70, 71. They had their first meeting as an AHSA at Howard University. John Clark, the first president. The second president, James Turner. James Turner, I mean, it's like, well, how could I not have heard of James Turner? Because James Turner lived his life in a governance formation, battling with a social structure, with love of Black people and unity at the core. And he trained generations. He and all that group that he brought around him. He, this is a man who made adjuncts. In other words, I got money. I got the community. I'm working. I'm selfless. I'm sacrificing. I have to do all this administrative work. And administrative work is a hell of a sacrifice. If you understand how it works, particularly in a hospital environment like that, he starts hiring adjuncts. Who's going to be an adjunct professor? John Henry Clark. What? Yosef Ben Yakinen. Dr. Ben lecturing at Cornell? I'm going to tell you who used to listen to Dr. Ben. You ever heard of Martin Bernal, who wrote Black Athena? Bernal was on the faculty at Cornell. In the Chinese studies, Asian studies. He, When he writes Black Athena, he talks about the old scrappers. These are these Black scholars who were writing about Egypt, but they weren't in universities. Well, Dr. Ben, that's what Dr. Ben told me. I was at Cornell lecturing and Bernard would be in the back. He stole from me. I'm saying, Dr. Ben, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I know one thing he definitely would have done, I would believe, is believe, oh, there's a market for this ancient Egyptians with black stuff. Why? James Turner bringing these cats in. Now, I'm saying I ought to say that, think of that metaphor. If Turner is the wedge and that center is the wedge at this edifice of Cornell and they're pulling the crack in and you keep pouring water the water of the people, the grounding, the community into that wood, it's expanding, it's expanding. It could crack the place, but it ran out of time. Left some permanent damage. The center is still there, but now it is no longer a unit that is independent with its own line directly to administration. It's got to come through the college arts and sciences. Ah, that's what you wanted. See, individuals don't beat institutions, and sometimes even institutional formations don't beat the larger institutions. And so while they celebrated Cornell or commemorate, rather, at Cornell, the, the straight hall takeover. Uh, he's hired in 69. The following year, under mysterious, so to speak, circumstances, allegedly, the Africana Studies Center house burns down. So they rebuild. Now they have a beautiful facility. Part of the facility adjacent is the John Henry Clark Africana Library. Oh, it's a remarkable place. And, and for years, Turner presided Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, Walter Rodden. If you come up there, he's going to, because one of the things he did was, I got these resources because of this struggle. We're going to use these resources and we're going to channel these resources to people who need them most. One of the reasons Walter Rodney is there because, is because the man got to feed his family. Again, this is James Turner. I did pull one of the Black worlds. He leads the delegation, delegation to the Sixth Pan-African Congress in Tanzania. Let me show you. This is article, 
Six Pan-African Congress, 1974, Historical Perspective by James Turner. He says an entire generation of African, Caribbean, and U.S. political activists were influenced by the ideas and strategies projected in the Fifth Pan-African Congress. That was 1945, Manchester, England. He says the discussions were initiated by Africans. An attempt was made for us to act, not just react. Because part of this is it isn't just enough to survive. We must thrive, which means struggle. We must resist. And we must resist with an end game in mind, which is what? Freedom for everybody as Black Thought would say, every GD body. And so he writes in this, this is just one of the many articles, but he writes about the first Congresses. And he's got some pictures, some pictures. There's Nkrumah, there's Garvey, who we'll be talking about next week. Here is George Padmore. And he writes about all of these struggles. The first pack, the second pack, third pack, fourth pack, fifth pack, sixth pack, first one on the African continent, because they tried to have the third Pan-African Congress on, in fact, let me just uh, read this very quickly. I, I will resist the urge to maybe, you know what? Maybe we, hmm, maybe this will be the article that I put in Nubia. We could talk about this. Um, he says, in 1923, at the height of entrenched colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean, naked repression of America's black community, I know it's naked, but I like saying naked, of America's black community, and years before the third world became began in earnest to look at a socialist alternative, there were bold ideas. By the time of the fourth Congress, W.E.B. Du Bois planned for a site nearer other African centers of population. He sought, this is what Du Bois wanted, 1923. He sought to have the fourth Pan-African Congress as a series of meetings in Jamaica, Haiti, Cuba, and Martinique or Guadeloupe. This is after the first one, actually the first Pan-African Conference was in Manchester, was in London, Henry Sylvester Williams, 1900. First Pan-African Congress was in Paris. Then they go to Brussels. This is after World War II, World War I rather, 1919. Then they go to Brussels. 1923, they want to go, Du Bois wants to have it in all these African, well, black pop, majority population countries that are coming and fighting colonialism. Here's what Turner writes. He says, the colonial powers quickly thwarted this plan by making sea transportation unavailable. What? So in 1927, the fourth Pan-African Congress was held in New York. For obvious reasons, African participation was low. Goes on. So 1929, would-be organizers of a fifth Pan-African Congress were insistent on an African site. This is 1929. Five-pack doesn't happen until 1945. After World War II, because remember, one of the things about World War II, losing all them people, it was white on white crime. White on white crime. Germany wants a piece of the pie. Du Bois wrote about that in 1915, the African roots of the war. Germany didn't get no whole bunch of colonies. They got a little Southwest Africa. They got a little piece of Cameroon. You got a couple of people. No, they want the whole, but you know what? Let me just fight. Let's just have a family fight. World War I and World War II, that is Europeans in their living room fighting and the damn fight spilled out the house to the back door and got the rest of the world involved. Don't ever mistake World War I and World War II with the world. Anyway. In 1929, would-be organizers of a fifth Pan-African Congress were insistent on an African site. This is why Africa's still fighting to get out of colonialism. He said, Turner writes, they tentatively selected for accessibility the North African city of Tunis, Tunisia. Now, what do we know about North Africa in the years between the war and in the beginning of World War II in the late 30s, early 40s? What do we know? Well, 
if you ain't paying attention at all and don't know nothing but the movies, you might know uh, D- uh, Dooley Miller singing at the piano, playing Sam in Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Lamont Doja said, oh, we was going to the movies. And every time a hero come in, a song come in. Remember, Igwin Bergman comes in to Rick's cafe, and Rick's sitting there, and you hear, "You must remember this theme song." But you fast forward thirty years. Whenever you're near me, I hear a symphony. There are many ways to resist. Cultural meaning making is a form of resistance. Now, anyway, the point is this: Casablanca. That's about damn near all any black people thought they knew about. North Africa. In fact, they didn't even know where that is. Like Timbuktu, they just kind of know it's vaguely African. Well, James Turner writes that they wanted to have the 5th Pan-African Congress in Tunisia at Tunis, the capital. He says the French government then informed the Congress planners that such a meeting could be held anywhere in France, but nowhere in Africa. Obviously, there was fear of a potential of Pan-African Congresses on African soil. It was not until after World War II the circumstances allowed for the convening of the 5th Pan-African Congress in Manchester, England, 1945. Why do I bring that up? Well, what I'm demonstrating there, what James, I'm not demonstrating anything. I'm reading his words. What James Turner is demonstrating, he's talking about how this quest for black unity was always being checked by this social structure. Now, I want you all to think, particularly if you're college and you're listening to this, if you're a young person, you're going to be always invited and recruited into studying abroad and the first ones on the lips of people and unfortunately too many of these people are our people are europe you want to go to paris you want to germany you want to go to england you want to go okay that's fine travel the world but don't you go to africa first not as an afterthought no first and go to several places in africa we're going back next august inshallah as the muslims would say we're going to go back and in fact Professor Hunter, as we as we think about this, we begin to wind up here. I'm gonna talk a few more things about James Turner. The I'm looking forward to the spring of 23. You know, God gives us breath, and we all keep, you know, we move. I want to do a study abroad. In fact, I'm giving y'all a preview. That is going to be the formation that we use. We're gonna do a study abroad. I'm hoping for May, sometime in May. We'll talk through this and work through this. Uh by study abroad, I mean sites here in the United States of America. You think I'd be kidding when I say we ain't Americans. <laughs> study abroad. We're going to do domestic study abroad. <laughs> in other words, study abroad don't mean getting on a plane. Might mean getting on a bus and going to Selma, going to Africa town. <laughs> Might mean going to uh, Nashville or Jackson, Mississippi. Might be going to New Orleans. Maybe stopping at where Nat Turner was caught or Denmark Vici was busy was uh was executed might be going to, to Charleston why I consider all of that study abroad so at any rate the whole point is James Turner is picked to lead the delegation to Tanzania the war is over the fifth pack is in Manchester who's at that uh fifth Pan-African Congress Yomo Kenyatta Yomo Kenyatta is ends up being the first prime minister of independent Kenya 
Nkrumah, first prime minister of independent Ghana. By the way, I'm well aware uh, I guess they're still counting votes. They're going to be arguing for a while, I'm sure, in Kenya. We know that there was a matchup there. Raila Odinga, who was another one of those, the son of one of those liberation leaders, is, is running to replace now the two-term and term-limited uh, current leader of Kenya, um, uh, Kenyatta, whose father was Yomo Kenyatta. And then the guy running against him, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to even get into that but i'm just saying well aware of it oh, and also in terms of the african world uh the united states biden administration however you want to care the united states government is not sending aid even as other countries are sending aid including cuba to oh well the cubans are trying to aid themselves at matanzas because there was an explosion there people are suffering you know matanzas is one of those black black areas in cuba and people are sending aid so you know we know the world continues to spin but anyway um not anyway so let me wind to a close turner Leads the delegation. This is the first Pan-African Congress they have in Africa. And Black World, Ebony Magazine, Johnson Publications, Hoyt Fuller is the editor of Black World. Oh, by the way, uh, Hoyt Fuller, Africana Studies and Research Center. He was there many times to speak. And because he's always trying to get somebody a check to prepare them, right? Here's is Julius Nereri, who was the host. That's the back of the magazine there. You see the people there. Um, Samora Michelle of Mozambique. All these people and the and the United States has a delegation and the diaspora has a delegation. Uh, CLR James is interviewed at the Sixth Pan African Congress. Uh, these are some of the people here. John Henry Clark writes an article in this particular issue. There are several that deal with the Pan African Congress, by the way. Oh, a little bit later that same year, they come back to the United States with more. And this is the uh, issue of Black World from October '74. Focus on the political situation in the black world and part one, black politics by Harold Cruz, another person, Africana Studies and Resource Center. James Turner is bringing all these people in and who's getting the benefit? The community up there. Who's getting the benefit? The African world. A lot of the stuff is recorded. Who's getting the benefit? The students and the students keep coming in waves and waves and waves and waves. These are some of them that last generation or so are the ones who put together this tribute. This is, as I say, Scott Brown, but it's also published by my friend and brother and good brother, uh, Kwasi Kanadu, Diasporic Africa Press, Black-owned press. They published that. That's in the spirit of James Turner, who says, we're not publishing our conference proceedings with Cornell University Press. We're publishing it through our center, the Africana Studies and Research Center, Cornell University. Yes, Cornell getting credit, but every inch of this ground was paid for by sacrifice. And that sacrifice isn't just academics, it's the community. So let me end with this. Because when I think about James Turner, I'm still, you know, processing. Last time I physically saw him and his wife, uh, he traveled to New York City. The African Heritage Studies Association honored him with one of the founders and Lifetime Achievement Awards. And I was particularly honored because I had been asked to come up to participate on a panel discussing him from John Henry Clark to, to James Turner. But uh, at the, that evening, Ron Daniels was the, was the keynote speaker that day, his longtime comrade who he brought to Cornell, gave him a check when he was in lean times. You know, struggle is struggle work, not easy work. You don't get grants for that kind of work. Although I see the MacArthur Foundation and, and some of these people giving out money to people to talk about reparations, always suspicious about that. You got to have the right people in the space. Otherwise, you know, they just trying to flip you. Don't we all know how corn chocolate work? But at any rate, um, that night, this was like 2015 or 16. Last time I physically saw him, um, I presented him with the award. And, you know, as I said that night, 
you know, as someone who never took a class with James Turner, but who knew him, who apprenticed with him, who got instruction from him, who shared notes with him, you know, I am one of his sons. But there are many, there are countless sons and daughters of James Turner, grandsons and daughters, great grandsons. I mean, that is the generation. But in terms of institution building, James Turner really shows us with his life. James Turner shows us with his life the um the possibilities and the limitations of institution building in white spaces. Because after he retired, you know, Cornell moved in the direction that we see now university-based Africana studies moving. Africana studies is a label. People have joint appointments or they come there with different things. The, the highlight is on the individual. And yes, these are well, a lot of you know, well-meaning people. They want to build community, but they are pulled back into that white space that those predecessors were resisting. And that for 40 years, James Turner held open a space that was beyond the academy. And I think the one of the lessons we learned that it is both and so you don't concede those spaces you continue to fight you continue to struggle but while you're doing that you must have this space because this is the destination africana studies is not should not be read james turner should not be a university centered practice if you find yourself at a place with some resources, it ain't no different than bringing home a ream of paper so the kids have something to draw on. It ain't, it ain't no different than if you're in charge of a little program and got 15 cents, you give seven of them to somebody who doesn't have a check because she's doing most of her work in the community. In other words, at James Turner's philosophy, you use whatever access you have to resources to enable other people who are beyond that capacity. And some of them are beyond that capacity because people are standing against them. We are, after all, in Black August, political prisoners, a key portfolio in the James Turner world. Worldview. But you build a space that nobody controls but us. And out of that space, you know what it does? Ironically, it strengthens your ability to deal in those other spaces. It strengthens your ability to continue to pour water into that wood wedge. Because when James Turner makes transition, that wedge is extracted from the wall of that institution. And that crack is then they put a little plaque by the crack and say, see, at one time, something created this crack. And we celebrate ourselves from accommodating it. That crack becomes an accessory that crack becomes an interesting ethnic earring that crack becomes a portrait on a wall and let us celebrate how great we are no no so james turner making transition um joining so many others who achieved them there he is yes there he is look with his man's book right there that's john henry clark's edited book malcolm x the man and our time uh, the, the man and his time. That is the great James Turner. We love that brother. You understand? You can see the coolness without him saying a word. It too, too. We love that brother. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to pause there. So Now, I guess I'm a child of, of Mr. Turner. Oh, no question. Well, you're in the same system. Y'all, this is the thing. There ain't no degrees of separation. Hunter College? Oh, no question. James Turner, you make you bring up his name on, on that campus. And all them story, you but oh, I didn't realize you. Know, oh yeah, he was everywhere. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I absolutely love what you said about us. The, the I think there's a responsibility for us, you know, to make this space everything so that we can exist in these other spaces and and that's right form cracks that cannot be um, 
you know, romanticized. Like, I should say one. Don't go anywhere, really. This is just very quick, because I can't really share this story. You know, some of them stories you just can't tell. I got to wait till everybody was in that room as an ancestor. And even then, I'm thinking I'm just going to write it down somewhere. I remember one night at a conference, John Henry Clark was fired up. Woo. And I was the youngest person in the room. My job was to tell anybody who came to the room they couldn't come in. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I can't tell you, how to, but I'm saying, but the fact that that was my job was like a trick because I knew that I had known these cats. Well, this is John Clark is not too far from him making transition. James Turner was in there and a bunch of other people. And, and you know, we've all been in these rooms, right? For mostly of us, family rooms. When you see an elder dressed down that next generation because of something they didn't do. <laughs> and as a as a as a younger one, you know, you can you ain't got no say. You just sitting in here like what I saw was what you're articulating. We have a responsibility to each other. Our elders, like the elders who join us on in office hours and throughout the Nubia space, you know, at some point, John Clark used to say this: you should get them their tea or what their favorite drink is. You sit them under the tree, you make sure they're comfortable, and anything they want to talk about, you listen to them. They should be relieved from battlefield duty. That's us now. You know what I'm saying? So when the elders come into office hours, yeah, you just hear this share. You shouldn't be fighting no more. If 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 you're still fighting, we have failed. <laughs> I just wanted to say that because you said that that triggered that memory. No, anyway. we, have, we have failed. Um, but the mm. thing about failing is that you learn, hopefully. That's right. You get back out there and, and that's how you win. So uh, we're not going to give up. Look, 34 years, they ain't give up on Salman Rushdie. I'm like, that kind of commitment out, child. And, 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 like, and how about, I should, I, this is unrelated, but we all saw that, uh, what's the actor's name, actress's name that's on Life? Uh, she, I think they uh, declared her dead now. Did they? they said, I know she was brain dead, so to speak. Yeah, she had a car accident, uh, fire, burn, uh, brain injury. You know, you know, I, I thought about that because, of course, the role that I think about her is in John Q. When she was playing the hospital administrator and they didn't have health care for Denzel Washington and Kimberly Elise's son. And she was not she was going to deny the claim. I mean, she's obviously just a role. But I'm just thinking about in this moment. Wow. And in real life, she ends up in that hospital on life support and nobody can do anything for her. On a day that we also celebrate 1881, uh, Spellman's nursing school opening. Spellman College. Shout out to Beverly Guy, Chef Tyler, and the fact. In fact, I got they, they did a wonderful history of Spelman book thirty years ago. But you know, white women, white women missionaries coming south. But you know, just because you start a thing, don't mean you know what that thing gonna end up. And watching those sisters on those drums and that white dress ceremony, man, I'm like, see, our people. But never forget, one of the reasons they got them white dresses on is because there's still too much Europe in our mind. At least the sisters are drumming though, so we we got work to do. But we gonna win. We're going to win and we're going to get there. And uh, let me bring this brother in and we're going to sit with him. There he is. And Monday night, y'all. We finish yeah. up with the groundings. Yeah. Uh, chapters three through six. Three through six. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to really get into it. And we're going to talk about the circumstances of his death and what has happened after because the legacy is real. We're part of the legacy of Walter Rapp right here. All right. Everyone, have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. We'll see some of you in uh, Maroon's Medicine Chest tomorrow with Dr. Senyata Ahmed. Ahmed. And then next week is, uh, what's the 20th? Is it? Wow. Yes. But this is the week, and you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, some folks may have joined us later. It's somebody important's birthday this week, right? We're getting ready Dr. to do Garvey. So we're going to be doing a special thing, which for me, I've been talking with Dr. Julius Garvey. We're going to be doing a special drop. 
but more importantly, I we, we're going to put a petition out next week and I'm going to ask everybody to get 10 people to sign it. This has got to be the last, you know, we got to get this done. Um, and it's a stroke of a pen. Well, that, what's, what's the this? Because some uh, people may not know what we're talking about. Oh, the this is to exonerate Marcus Garvey. Uh, the yeah, Dr. Garvey wants his daddy to have his record. Free, and it should no be. Question. No uh, question. Trump charges and, you know, if Trump can free Jack Johnson. Come on. Come on. What, what can we do for Marcus Garvey, President Biden? It's time. Damn, it's time. That, woo, that you know what? See, you be dropping bars even when that'd be a hell of a shit. What can we do for Marcus Garvey? But first of all, who is we? You want us we and your midterms coming up. I mean, look, I hope Benny Thompson. Have you heard anything from Congressman Thompson? Nothing. I, I think I'm strategically not. he may have now played completely back because they using old girl as a battering ram. Then they're going to start this hearings up again in September. These cats got, they come up with a playbook. So maybe this is the time to get Garvey's party because yeah. you don't want some votes from us, bro. I mean, and it's, it's symbolic, but I mean, Dr. Garvey is in his 80s. You come know, on now. On the screen. Let's, let's go. Let's, let's go. go. And, and as I was saying to you off mic, these are the building blocks. You know, if collectively this costs you nothing to sign a petition, costs nothing. you absolutely nothing, nothing. And get 10 people to do it costs you nothing. It's even less expensive than voting, which requires you having to fill out something or going to a ballot, you know, going to the voting place, maybe standing in line. You don't even have to do that. Click a button and hit exonerate, period, and put your signature on it. When We're going to post that on his birthday, which is the 17th, but I might have to put it out earlier. So we'll, you know. I'm a, I know you're going to do it. He'll tell you what to do. Yeah, and that's everybody, y'all. Every guy, you no, know, forget skin color, forget be here. Sign this, sign this, sign this. That's right, that's right. Marcus Garvey Day. All right, thank you, Prof. Love you. Thank you, love you as well, everyone. Uh, see y'all in the Nubian streets. See you tomorrow.